Welcome to The Old World Lives, a Warhammer Fantasy Battles podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The Old World Lives, on Instagram at The Old World Lives, and you can reach us by email at theoldworldlives at gmail.com. And now, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to The Old World Lives, or a small part of it, uh, with a guest, Joseph Piggott. Hello, lovely to be here. So Joseph is uh, one of my regular opponents here in uh, in London. Uh, we've been playing since uh, for as long as I've been here, pretty much. Uh, so could you tell us about yourself, who you are? Yeah, so um, I um, I grew up in France uh, and basically got into Warhammer in well around the time of the late nineties. Um, I remember starting and then uh, going into a games workshop. And there was a uh, there was a big sale on about a couple of years after I'd started. Um, it was like a, a clearance sale, and I was like, "Oh my god, is is Warhammer ending?" Um, no, that was actually the clearance sale for fifth edition, um, and sixth edition was uh, about to kick off. Um, so, basically, the, the the real apogee of uh, of Warhammer fantasy for me. So, uh, um, and then I think like like many people tried to, you know spend a lot of time in fantasy uh, and a bit of forty k. Lord of the Rings and then went off to uni and like everyone else sort of really stopped playing um, until about two, three years ago. Um, I just uh, I just really, really wanted to, I had that big pang of nostalgia uh, and um, had the wonderful thing of, of being an adult with an adult's income, which meant that all the dreams I had as a child in terms of buying, um, buying a, a decent sized army, uh, along with obviously the joy of evil meant uh, it was it was possible. So, yeah, I got stuck in and uh, and haven't looked back since. Yeah, it sounds like uh, the story of uh, most people that are playing sixth edition now. <laughs> um, so uh, this episode is a Britonia special. So we will be covering the the land of Britonia and the the chivalrous nice that live there. And I thought Joseph would be a perfect. Uh, person to interview for this because uh, not only do you well, you, did you play Britonia before? I, I didn't actually. It's one of these armies I've always wanted to play up, but um, I I played basically the Empire, but um, uh, I don't know. I, I you know, growing up, uh, I was always fascinated by by knights, and and I'm finally now starting my own my own Britonian force. Yeah. So yeah, you're starting your Britonia force, and also you are a bit of a uh, a master on the subject of knights, having written uh, some fiction or semi-fiction. Yeah, yes, yeah, so I wrote a uh, sort of um, semi-fictional um, biography of the the first half of um, of William the Conqueror's uh, life, and just uh, uh, enjoyed uh, nerding out, really reading all the uh, all the source material around that. So yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, first off, I want to just uh, ask, like. Knights in general is very fascinating, like medieval history, and it seems like wherever you go in Europe, it seems like the the favorite historical time period of anyone, and you can see even now just medieval fairs. I've been to a medieval fair in in Sweden in, in Gotland Island. It was awesome, uh, just within the old medieval walls. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's also a great um, a, a great medieval fair in uh, in Lincoln, which was site of uh, of two or three big uh, medieval battles, and that's a, a lovely medieval themed fair as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's definitely not a period that's dying out in terms of uh, in terms of interest. Yeah. Um, yeah, and part of that is uh, I don't know the the whole thing with chivalry and there's like the perfect fairy tale material with heroism and yeah, absolutely. So I, I chivalry is is one of those things where it's quite a it's quite a, um, quite a nebulous subject, quite a difficult one to pin down. It's quite it's quite controversial for um, for historians, but it's it's just been such a source of. Um, of inspiration and, and not just now but um, even historically speaking people would be would be would be harking back to to chivalry and almost creating an age that's that, that didn't exist uh, and um, I think the beauty with Britannia is that because it's fantasy we're able to to take the, sort of the myths the legends all the things that we we sort of wish had actually been around at some point in time combine that with um history that actually existed and you've you've just got this this realm of infinite possibilities of 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 of, of chivalrous tales so I, I think that's that's one of the big appeals of Britannia for me excellent so should we get into Britannia and uh, what it is in the the old world and uh, we'll go back to the the inspiration for it yeah absolutely so um, for those who, who, who perhaps haven't uh, haven't had the joy of discovering Britannia before, if you look at a map of the old world, Britannia is is broadly speaking where France is on a map of Europe. Um, it's also a very similar shape to France. So I'm Brittany and Normandy are, are squashed in a bit, um, and all the part that's see that's northeast of France that's just wastelands up near near Marienburg, which is um, perhaps for people who have been to the, to the Pas de Calais actually a very good description of what it's like in, in real life as well. Um, and then you've got you've got the, the place names and the places. So you've got Bordeaux, which is very similar to Bordeaux, and it's it sits on an estuary in sort of the, the southwest of the country. You've got really French names like Aquitaine, Carcassonne, Brionne, that are places that still exist. You've got a big bit of forest that's similar to um, the forest of uh, Brocéliande, which is sort of very big in the Arthurian legends. They they call it the forest of Ardennes, which is a bit like the forest of Ardennes, which which really exists. Um, and then you've got some great play on words like the Massif Central, which is the big bulk of mountains in France, becomes the Massif Orcal because it's infested with orcs. So there's always great stuff like that. And you've got the the, the river Sanes, which is broadly speaking the river Seine. Um, and Bretagne is it's um, it's it's a rich agricultural land with with plenty of vineyards. That's that's really where its its wealth comes from. But yeah, the one word that, that describes Bretagne really is is chivalry. Yeah, and uh, knights knights and mounted warfare. Absolutely, yeah, knights and and mounted warfare. So for me, there are there are basically three things that that make up Bretagnean law. Um, the first one is the the historical aspects, and um, if you look at some of the big contributors, particularly in the fifth edition, um, people like Nigel Stillman and the Perry brothers, quite clearly they're basing it on France of the Middle Ages, a bit of England, but mainly France of the High Middle Ages. Um, a lot of it is um, Hundred Years' War, but you can't really be too precise in in dating it because. Um, you've got, for example, uh, Repense de Lyonnais, who's 
who's basically Joan of Arc. So that would make you think maybe it's the end of the Hundred Years' War, sort of 1420s, 1430s. Um, but then you've got characters like the, the sort of the, the latest king of Bretagne is Louis Léoncoeur, which sounds sus- suspiciously like someone's taken Louis, as in Louis VII of France, who was leader of the Second Crusade, and Coeur de Lyon, so Richard Lionheart, one of the leaders of the Third Crusade, and sort of mixed them all together, copied it up so you can't tell it's a copy. Um, so already there you've got sort of three centuries of gap between Second Crusade and, and Joan of Arc. Yeah. So we can't get too hung up on <clears throat> dating, really. Yeah, kind of like, uh, I guess, people's uh, imagination of the the Middle Ages. Like, it's a bit fussy of what actually fits in where and actually like where the the heavily armored knights actually existed because you i would think earlier in my life maybe that the knights were around uh 1100 1200 with the crusades that that's the time when they were fully armored knights but it wasn't really until hundreds of years later that they were like the the pinnacle of of knights that you you have in mind yeah absolutely and, and also and th- this is this is nothing new in fact the sort of the confusion over over arms and armor if you look at a lot of medieval manuscripts you tend to find um the fighters are represented like knights of the period in which the chronicle was written even if they're referring to um like you know battles in greece or or the ancient bible they just portray them as knights of their time so that confusion is is very much around you know or has been around forever. And then so the other two things that really make Bretonnia are, I think, pageantry. So the knights, they're, they're represented wearing crests and and their horses have got sort of trappings. And you know, these are things which normally you'd only really see them worn during the, the big pageantry moments at, uh, at the beginning of tournaments. So, you know, no knight would actually wear a crest in in battle, just like you wouldn't see a, a Viking with horns on his helmets. But the beauty of the beauty of fantasy is that we can we can have these things. You know, we don't have to be too realistic. And then the the third and final thing, but which is massively a part of Britannia, is um, is Arthurian legends. So it's got its founding myth with Gilles Le Breton, who's sort of a, a cross between Arthur and Charlemagne. You've got Landwin, who's Lancelot. You've got Maldred, and an enchantress, who's sort of like Mordred and Morgana le Fay. And, um, and again, a really appealing thing is that, yes, sort of there are centuries and centuries between the founding legend of Britannia and sort of modern day Britannia, but the Holy Grail is real. The Lady of the Lake is real. The, these, aren't, these aren't legends. These are very much something that keeps Britannian culture together. And um, I think that's, that's something that's that sort of it's 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 really interesting. It's, it's something that sort of comes across um, through through a lot of medieval writing as well, because um, you know people are constantly looking back to um, to the time of of King Arthur, which again is is really hard to pin down because there's only really fragmentary evidence of of there ever being someone called called Arthur, let alone a, a King Arthur. But you see, in the twelfth century, you've got Geoffrey of Monmouth, you've got Chrétien de Troyes, who are both writing about King Arthur. Um, you've got Edward III creates the Order of the Garter that's like the um, the Knights of the Round Table, so that's like 1348. You've got Gawain and the Green Knights written around 1400, and you've got Thomas Mallory in like the late 15th century, and they're all looking at Arthurian legends. So it's something which is it's a fascination that's always been there, and I think it's something really clever 
that they combine Britannia with Arthurian legend. Um, and it's it's something that's it's not gone away. This interest is it's still around. You you know you you've got. Um, uh, for example, Bernard Cornwall, who's who's writing, you know, who who wrote his Arthurian uh, trilogy to to tremendous success, and I think it's one of those subjects that will just keep fascinating forever. Yeah, it seems like a a very <clears throat> natural fit into uh, any fantasy setting because most fantasy is loosely based around like medieval times, mm. but swords and bows—that's the 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 thing of fantasy—and then throw in some magic and just evil forces and that is pretty much the, the essence of every fantasy world yeah it really is and also i think that the thing about um the thing about arthurian legend is that it's got quite a quite a strong narrative and i, I was listening uh, with 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 great interest to uh, to a previous episode of uh, the old world lives talking about narrative gaming and that's that's something that i'm i'm really passionate about i think just it's you know yes you know wargaming is is playing with toy soldiers and there'll be different reasons why people enjoy it some people do it purely for the game some people do it purely for painting some people do it purely for narrative side but but the narrative is for me you know one of the one of the most interesting bits because it's it's what brings it to life you're no longer talking about a unit moving across a battlefield you're talking about knights charging in um and that's that's why people like to play britannia they they like to talk about the tales of their knights fighting insurmountable odds yeah excellent um where should we go from well, here? Well, I, I thought we might we might simply mention that we're we're um, we're accompanying this uh, this episode with uh, a, a selection of wines and, in true spirit of uh, the Hundred Years' War, I I thought we'd start off with a with an English wine, a Chapel Down Flint Dry, because I think England making wines is is very much us parking our tanks on French lawns, which <laughs> I think is really in keeping with the Hundred Years' War, basically. Yeah, I left the the wine selection to the the semi Frenchman. But it is very good. Good choice. It is indeed. I've also picked out ones that have got a bit of nice bit of heraldry on the front as well. Maybe we could talk a bit about um, a little bit about the origins of of Britannia. So, um, like I mentioned earlier, we've got this founding legend. So, uh, the founding legend is a character called Gilles Le Breton. Um, which again, it's it's an interesting choice of name because in in Arthurian legends, uh, you know you have characters who are named by their places. So Percival is Percival le Gallois or or Parsifal the Welshman. So um, I think having having Le Breton, it's not it's not insignificant. And so is that based on uh, Brittany? Yeah. So yes, essentially. So um, at so back in Arthurian legends. You have you have lots of small kingdoms which all form Britain, and so all the texts that talk about it are, are broadly referred to as the matter of Britain. And there's not there's not a clear clear distinction between Brittany and Britain. Um, so, for example, um, some versions have uh, Lancelot being the the son of um, Ban of Benwick, and Benwick is basically um the kingdom near where um the Mont Saint Michel is. So that's like the border between Normandy and Brittany where there's this sort of island with a with a an abbey that's built on it. Um and um uh, and then obviously Lancelot goes across and, and joins um King Arthur's court. So there's not a clear, clear 
distinction between the two uh, the two territories really it's, it's all part of one thing up until the sort of Saxon invasions really um and Gilles Le Breton's a really interesting character because he's sort of a mix, as I said earlier, between Charlemagne and King Arthur and, and Charles Martel to a certain point. So one thing, which again is a massive attraction of Bretonnia, is that the Arthurian legends are they're a tragedy. It's decline, it's continual decline. Whereas if you look at Bretonnia in the Warhammer world, actually it's it's quite a comparatively uh, young nation um, you know it's it's been around for like you know like 14 15 centuries but um, compared to uh, compared to the empire it's it's really young something like 800 years go by between compared Sigmar to the, and the dwarves and the elves <laughs> compared to the dwarves and the elves it's 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 nothing it's a it's it's a, an infant um, so I think that's this big attraction of Britannia you don't have decline you've got you've got it's the apogee of of Arthurian legends, um, and you know, but like his death is very similar to Arthur. So he he, he gets killed by a by a missile weapon, which again is a reason why the Bretonian knights you know have a massive disdain for 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 archery and refuse to employ war machines and things like that in in in, in some of the editions. Um, and then um, Gilles Le Breton is, is is born off to this. To this undying land, when he sort of dies, to to return to us like a once and future king, a bit like Arthur, but he's also like Charlemagne. So at that point, Britannia is not one united kingdom; it's lots of small sort of kingdoms or or, or dukedoms. We don't really have a proper name for them, and the whole place is overrun with orcs. And um, Gilles Le Breton has these twelve battles, and basically in each battle, he's got a new companion joining him. Um, which is got a massive, massive uh, ring of um, uh, of what you see in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where each time they go to a new place, they, they collect a new member along the way. Um, it's very much got that. And basically, through these 12 battles, he clears the orcs out of the land, he founds Britannia, and becomes uh, the first king of Britannia, and that's when the um, the dukedoms are, are properly uh, established. Yeah, so, and they didn't have the help of... Uh... The dwarves, like the empire did. That's the reason why the empire was founded so much earlier, because they just funneled them out through Hellfire Pass, but they were still on the the west side of the Grey Mountains, just hanging out. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it's it's one of these uh, one of these wonderful um, alliances. that's just a pure pure coincidence, um, just like Britannia with the with the Wood Elves. It's it's just because it so happens that they sort of. They're chasing orcs that run into the um, into the forest of um, of Athelorren. That means that they they then become allies. They they don't have any fundamental reason to be allied, and the Wood Elves are really really wary of anyone going near their lands. But you know, your enemy is my enemy, therefore we're friends. Yeah, uh, and also like the the elf connection with the Bretonians is that they they're occupying old. Uh, high elf cities along the coast, right? Yeah, they, they are indeed. Yeah, high elf colonies. Absolutely. So there were there were a number of high elf colonies um, in the in the old world where um, the high elves established um, trading outposts, basically. And this was like again the apogee of the high elves when they were really prosperous. And then we've got um, one of your favourite um, periods, Nicholas, which is the War of the Beards, yeah. where basically um, you know things go wrong and the high elves go right, you know. I'm off. You can sort yourselves out, and they they founded these wonderful cities, and the Bretonians have have sort of, you know, 
uh, adopted these uh, these cities, and it's very much a question of sort of high elf ruins where the Bretonians are doing a bit of a bit of patron men. So for the Bretonians, it's you know it is glory. They are they are wonderful buildings with great architecture, um, and there's there's very much a feeling like. Um, uh, like the period after the Romans uh, withdrew, whereby you know um, the civilizations that have that have been left behind or sort of you know re- reoccupy the territories are are building and are, and are desperately trying to to keep up and, and to get back to the level of architecture that the that the Romans had. That's sort mm. of how I see it. It reminds me of uh, a scene in uh, in Vikings when uh, this uh, British. Uh, well, I don't know, you could call him king, but lord of a a dukedom uh, shows this person into a, a wonderful bath with hot springs. Like, look at what the Romans did, and now we're masters here. And they're trying to catch up with what the Romans had. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's 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 very much present. Um, and um, so yeah, so it's 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 an interesting one. So that's that's basically the founding of Britannia. Um, and then uh, there's, I don't know, we, we could talk about, maybe we should go into the, into the errantry wars a bit. Yeah, so um, I just want to touch on as well uh, with Bretonia, from the founding, their deal was knights on horses, right? Absolutely, sorry, I was just taking a sip of this very nice wine. Um, yeah, absolutely, so... Uh, it's very much the deeds of the Britannian knights which, which create Britannia. Um, that's when they, it's when they really come, you know, come of of age. They, you know, they become powerful. Uh, it's these these few mounted knights who are really sweeping the lands, clearing all the, all the orcs away. That's the beginning of Britannia. Yeah, and they kind of kept this way of warfare since then, and uh, I told jo- Joseph earlier that. Uh, I constantly see people saying like, uh, "Oh, why hasn't the Bretonia evolved? Why haven't they cut, caught up with the Empire? They're already using uh, gunpowder because that's people see that as the natural progression of of the, the world because that's the natural progression of our history that we went from using knights to using just massed uh, formations of uh, people armed with handguns." Uh, but I think it's not really applicable to this situation because uh, the Bretonians haven't evolved, but neither have their opposition because they've been fighting the same kind of orcs since the founding and uh, a Bretonian charge will break orcs. There's no need to try and update to a different kind of technology when what you have is the ultimate weapon for destroying the enemy that you have. And... Uh, uh, should we talk a bit about mounted warfare in, yeah, in history? Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, we were talking about this a bit earlier as well, and Joseph said that he didn't want to talk about worldwide because it's very debatable where it all began with uh, guys riding horses. Because the Romans used some cavalry, they mostly used them for scouting. Uh, the stirrup was like a massive invention. Yeah, absolutely. It's revolutionized the the world of riding horses. And yeah, the Egyptians used chariots as well. Uh the Mongols used stirrups as well and they that's one of the reasons why they were so powerful. But let's focus on horses in Europe. Uh Western Europe. 
and mainly knights. Yeah. So, I mean, so again, the, the origins are quite hard to, to to pinpoint. But if we look at knights as a as a social class, as uh, you know, knights under chivalry, I suppose for the, the a, a good guess of when it it really really came into um, into fruition, having this social order of, of knights would probably be um, around the time of the death of, of Charlemagne, so around, you know, um, 808 and 14, sorry. And just a recap for those who don't know who Charlemagne is. Uh... Yeah, so Charle- Charlemagne was basically the, um, if you like, the founding father of um, the the French kingdom, or the, like the, the Holy Empire, as it were. So he that's why I made that comparison earlier with... Uh, with um, with Jules Le Breton, because he sort of he he unites the whole thing in one big block. Yeah, very powerful French guy who got uh, he he was sanctioned by the Pope as well, so he got a lot of uh, prestige and yeah and rights from absolutely. the Pope. Absolutely, and I think it, it's it's not a coincidence the fact that um, so many knightly households make a big thing of being able to trace their lineage back to back to Charlemagne. Um, he was you know. He was like a period of glory for for France, and um, and basically, when you know, following his death and the breakup of of the Carolingian Empire, um, warfare shifted a bit because you went from having this big united empire fighting wars of expansion to um, lots of small local fights of you know Christian fighting Christian, and. It was really necessary to find a way of, of containing that because you had these knights who were who were highly trained, um, you know, capable of incredible violence because they were so well trained and so well equipped. So what do you do to contain them and to turn it into a positive? So there are two things that they did. The one most immediate thing was to um, to declare what's known as the peace of God, the trêve de Dieu, and basically uh, it meant that it warfare was um under strict rules so there are only certain days for example that you were allowed to take up arms unless you were actually in the army of the of the king himself but uh, you you do really see a big decline in the power of the kings of france after the fall of of uh, of charlemagne they they're very much reduced to an area around um around paris particularly in the in the 10th century but the other thing was to develop the the code of uh, chivalry. Now, again, chivalry—it's uh, a very difficult word to pin down. But if we had to simplify it, it is a code of conduct of how you, as a knight, should behave, what your what your duties are, um, and uh, you know, part of it would, for example, be uh, protecting the weak, protecting those who who couldn't take up arms themselves. So that would be protecting women, protecting the church and p- protecting the peasants, which is really important because the peasants are the ones who generate the wealth through agriculture. So you need, in order for France to be strong, to protect agriculture. Yeah. And it was like a, a warrior class at this time as well, that uh, you needed you needed the peasants to be out plowing the fields and then you also needed people to fight and the people that could fight were the ones that could afford to to arm themselves and to train, and they were the ones doing the fighting. So the, the armies at this, at this time as well were a lot smaller than what you would consider an army. Yeah, no, d- definitely a lot smaller. I mean, for example, um, 
if you, if you had three thousand men on each side on the battlefield, that was that was a huge, huge, noteworthy battle that would be in the chronicles. Um, but you know, usually, and even even if you look at the at the first battles of um, of of William of Normandy, we're talking about a few hundred men on each side. When you know, when he was when he was just duke, uh, it's really a very small, very well trained, very well funded elite. That's that's the knightly orders, basically. Yeah. So when when were knights active in Europe? Like between a thousand and fourteen something. Yeah. So roughly? yeah, I I suppose that would be the that would be the the apogee of of knights. So the obviously the Normans were were massively effective with their um with their cavalry, and they they did come to you know to dominate the battlefield um although you know they, they had there, there were other other dukedoms and counties in France like uh, like Anjou for example which um which also had um had mounted warfare um but broadly speaking so if you're looking at the, the height of knights you're probably looking at around 11 1200s um through to uh i guess the the wars of the roses but even the wars of the roses you you do start to see a a decline in in the use of uh, in the use of knights in favour of um, better trained, better equipped infantry than than you would have seen before. Yeah, so we're talking about why knights went away, and there are many reasons. But uh, yeah, it's it's a lot easier to to pay for men to be trained, and it's a lot easier for you personally to not have to go into the field. And also uh, around this time in Europe. Uh, they started building more fortresses where knights weren't as effective and uh, they started using mercenary armies to a greater extent train mercenary armies that you don't have to to fund to train for for a long period of time you can just pay them straight away and they will go to a battle fully prepared Uh, a lot of them being from germany uh, the infamous landknecht which is the basis of the, the empire soldiers ironically um and uh yeah so society evolved uh to where knights were not as effective but in the warhammer world as i said their enemies haven't changed the the orcs aren't building fortresses where knights aren't as effective and the orcs aren't paying for mercenary pike to to fight the knights the orcs are just charging on in a massive horde that can be easily broken by a concentrated uh, mounted charge. If you break their morale, they will run away. And it's, it's been working that like that since Gil Brodum, and it still works now. So that is my argument for why they're not using gunpowder. Yeah, I think that's. I think it's a very valid argument. Um, uh, and if you look actually at the the topography of of the old world, you have this big, big, big mountain chains of of of, of the Grey Mountains that stands between. Britannia and uh, literally pretty much the the only places that's that are using gunpowder. Um, as you said, Nicholas, you know, if your if your enemies are all uh, predominantly either on foot or or other cavalry, um, if your tactics are are effective and and you know there aren't that many defeats actually in Britannian history. You've got a lot of struggles, but again because it's it's you know Arthurian legends, you do have uh, the these paragons of virtue. They have to win out because if they don't win, then what is the point of of chivalry? So, yeah, I think that's that's sort of two you know the two the two big arguments as to why 
Britannia has has not adopted um, uh, gunpowder. It's not because they've not evolved. It's because one, they they don't need to, and two, it wouldn't be the virtuous thing to do, basically. So that's I think that's why they've kept it because it works. Yeah, and it kind of goes hand in hand. Like it is the virtuous thing. I think the knights uh, of their time also thought that, but in the end they lost out because it was too necessary to evolve. But here it is not necessary, so they can still uphold those virtues. And also the Empire are fighting a different foe. They're fighting Chaos Warriors in Chaos Armor, and they need gunpowder. Yeah, they are. So they're a lot more a lot more exposed in in that respect. Um, and also the, the geography, as I mentioned, that the, the Empire is full of forests and hills and mountains, while Bretonia is a lot more fields. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's the geography really lends itself in Bretonia to, uh, to you know, open fields with cavalry charges, whereas trying to move armies with with lots of heavy cavalry even though obviously um the empire does have its its knightly orders it's um it's not as it's not as feasible yeah yeah i just wanted to to have that said let's go on to uh, you were talking about the founding of uh the borderlands that period yeah so basically the um the uh the the the, the errantry wars so so yeah that's like the the big part of Bretonian history after the founding. It is, yeah, it is. So, um, again, coming back to coming back to, to knights and, and the peace of God and the rules of chivalry about trying to contain things. So, in in the real world, um, the sort of the big, big, big answer to what do you do with all these armed men? Um, and there's there's an added difficulty because you're not just talking about an armed class. You're talking about an armed class with male primogeniture, which means basically the oldest son inherits everything so that you keep your your land intact and your strength intact. So then what do the younger sons do? They have to go out, they have to find fortune. Some of them join the clergy, but you don't really have a clergy in, in Bretonia. You've got, that's the role of women. They give you the tasks, they decide who's worthy. Um, so that's not a source, uh, a viable source for the Bretonians. So they have to fight. So in the real world, you've got the Pope, Pope Urban II, you know, the call for the crusade, let's send all these incredibly violent men to do, to do God's work. Well, in Britannia, you have um, uh, an Arabian army, and they do actually call it a, a, an Arabian army, which uh, invades Estalia. So that's basically Spain. Um, mm. So you've got Estalia uh, that's, that's just to the, to the southwest mm. of, of Britannia. Invaded by... Uh... Jafar. Yeah, by Jafar. Yeah, uh, he named after the uh, orange chocolate biscuits or cakes, um, and basically they yeah they invade and it it's it's very much a um, uh, a, a caliphate that gets that gets established and so um, the Bretonians the Bretonians um, you know take up the take up the call to arms and uh, declare an um, an errantry war. Uh, Along with a lot of the uh, knights of the empire, absolutely, yeah. So, the, so the two armies combine, and there's it culminates in what's an equivalent to the to the Battle of, of Tours or, or Poitiers, depending on how you name it. Again, this is a reason why you don't get too hung up on trying to trying to do direct comparisons or dating with uh, you know, between uh, the Warhammer world and the real world. It's very much inspired because, like, the Battle of Poitiers was seven thirty two, which is like before Charlemagne's time. Anyway. King of Britannia, Louis the Righteous, which sounds a lot like Louis the Pious of, of France, um, kicks back the um, uh, the Arabian army, 
and then says, right, we're going to take the fight to them. So this happens in, in the Britannian year um, 470, which is uh, broadly equivalent with the imperial year uh, 1448, if you're going by Sigmar's calendar. It says, we'll take the fight to them, and there are two armies that go off. One crosses the sea, or one crosses the land. And basically, the army that crosses the sea is victorious before the army that's crossing the land can even get there. Um, so what do you do? You're you know you're a young a young knight who's gone off to seek his fortune. You get told fights over. Yeah. The, also, I just want to say that they had made it to the dwarf hold of Barak, Barakvar, which is in the the inlet that goes by the border princes. And when they reached that hold, they were told that the army is has already won and there's nothing for them to do there. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got the choice. You either go home having not really accomplished anything or you stay there and a lot of them stay there and they create the border princes so it's basically these realms uh where uh you know small uh well knights have set themselves up as, as small lords and um you have regular um re regular fights there to to expand mm -hmm. your territory and, and, and claim prizes it's basically the the balkans of it's basically <laughs> the, the balkans world. yeah absolutely absolutely <clears throat> So yeah, the dwarves were very happy, and they helped these these guys out in clearing the orcs because this area had been infested by orcs since forever. So you have like the mountain chain, the grey mountains that go out from the World Edge Mountains, and to the north of them, you have the Empire. The dwarves have already helped them clear out the orcs uh, and push them south into the Badlands, and then you have Britonia that have been cleared out of the orcs, but there's still orcs in the Border Princes. So the Britonians now try and clear them out and the the dukes form their own little kingdoms and princedoms and whatever but there are still orcs left and beastmen and other nasty things but they try and carve out their little kingdoms in this place yeah absolutely and um so that's that's like the next um big 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 episode after the time of Gilles Le Breton it's it's the wars of the wars of errantry um, and then we should perhaps come on to, um, so we've had the orcs cleared out, we should perhaps come on to another big enemy of Britannia, which is the, the undead, and, and how that came about. Um, and so there are, there are discrepancies between the different, the different editions, sort of as, as they sort of build, build up on the, um, on the lore and legend of, uh, of Britannia, um, but broadly speaking, if you if you go back to about fifth edition, um, that's where it, it it all it all makes sense if you're making a comparison with um, with Arthurian legends. So, as I was saying about the the role of the role of of of, of women. So you've got the Lady of the Lake, who is basically the um, both the both the head of the church, as it were, although it's not a structured church. And also the like the, the the goddess that they pray to, as it were. She 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 appears, um, and she's she's very much a a real character. Um, and if you wanted to make a real world comparison, you'd say it's a bit like in the Hundred Years War, where uh, both England and France in every battle would be praying to the Virgin Mary. It's, it's a bit like that. But again, I think we shouldn't get it too loaded. But what makes you worthy in Britannia? What makes you worthy is seeing the holy grail so for example when Gilles Le Breton dies his his son can't become king because he's not seen the grail 
So he has to actually uh, actually ride out and and find the Grail and see it. And it's it's quite a few years before he he returns and says, right, I've I've seen the Grail. And everyone simply by looking at him can tell he's got this aura about him. He has seen the Grail. He is he is worthy. Um, and in that respect, it's a bit like the High Elves, where they have to walk through the flames, um, leading to a to a to a certain episode. Uh, in which a certain high elf maybe wasn't worthy and maybe went on to uh, to found a, a whole you know dark elf society, but we don't talk about that. Um, and anyway, the reason why this is important is because uh, there is in the in the Bretonian year thirteen nineteen the affair of the false grail. So um, I mentioned earlier uh, one of the one of the companions of Gilles Le Breton was uh, was a chap called Landwin. And he, broadly speaking, he's he's like Lancelot. And Lancelot, of course, in the Holy Grail um, stories, never sees the Grail because he's not worthy. Well, one of the descendants of Landwin in Britannia is called Maldred, which again sounds a bit like Mordred of Arthurian legends. Maldred wants to claim the throne of Britannia because the king, particularly, particularly good king, a particular paragon of virtue, has died. So... He and his uh, consort, who's an enchantress, get someone to make a grail. And so he goes up to the court and says, not only have I seen the grail, but I've actually been given the grail by the Lady of the Lake. Aren't I great? And this is where he's, you know, he's saying, I'm, I'm worthy. This is proof. Um, and the Lady of the Lake is, is nowhere to be seen. Uh, and what's actually happened is that uh, the sorceress, who's probably an equivalent of Morgana Le Fay, uh, has imprisoned the enchantress, uh, the, the Lady of the Lake, sorry, under a rock on, on Dol, which is, the way it's described, it's a bit like Mont Saint-Michel, this, this rock. So she's not there to contradict him. But the Grail Knights find something a bit suspicious about the whole thing and eventually uncover the, the secret, discover the Lady of the Lake, truth is restored, and Muldred is exiled. But Muldred was the Duke of Musion, or, or Musion, however you want to pronounce it. And what happens after the affair of the, uh, of the False Grail is you have the Red Pox that claims lives across the whole dukedom of Musion, but only Musion. And Muldred and his enchantress consorts try to escape it by locking themselves away in a high tower. It doesn't work. They perish. And then after the Red Pox... The Undead Arrive. Is this the story from the 6th uh, edition book? It is indeed. It's also, so the False Grail is also mentioned in, in the 5th edition, though it doesn't go quite into... Yeah, because I, I, I read the 5th the edition one, just as a quick comparison of uh, those exact details, because most of it is the same, but in the 5th edition one, uh, they lead an army to besiege Museon, and uh, there's no mention of the Red Parks, uh, but they besiege the city, and the peasants are dying from starvation while they are locked in their tower uh, where they are just having feasts and parties and just orgies and just enjoying life as much as they can before they die. And then uh, eventually the Bretonians storm the city and uh, they find the find Muldred and his uh, witch uh, already dead. And he's holding the cup, and then the the seeress sees this, and then she's horrified, and then she orders 
the, the knights to block up the throne room with them still inside. And then they put a bunch of spells to, to keep it in. And then they leave, and that's it. Oh, that's excellent. There's, there's a certain amount of uh, Antony and Cleopatra in there. It's very appealing. Um, so yeah, so there's a bit of there's there's a bit of discrepancy between the the, the two editions. But in the in the sixth edition book, the um, the red pox comes in about two three years after the affair of the false grail. I think it's really telling that Mousianzi, the you know, the one place in Bretagne that's really affected by the undead, that's got the undead coming because undeath in in literature is symbolically linked to to an impure soul and basically he tried to to con his way into becoming king of Bretonia when he wasn't he wasn't a, he wasn't worthy of it and and that's that taint that he's brought in has has really stained uh, the dukedom of of Mousillon till this day and it's it's never recovered yeah so how how uh so are they undead are they they they're vampires now right uh, Maldred and, uh, and the Enchantress herself. Um, I, I don't know. Like in in Moussillon, there are vampires. Yes. Yeah. Th- yeah. Th- there are there are vampires, and uh, there is a uh, a character who's I'm trying to remember his exact name. He you never hear his his name itself. It's something like the Red the Red Duke or the Red Knight, who who emerges. Yeah, because it seems like uh, they kind of, uh, and also in fifth edition they say that. Uh, they try and resettle Musillon, but it's just a lost cause, and then they eventually set up fortresses around the tainted area, and, and just like guard it from there. And then it seems like ill creatures have infested the area. Yeah, yeah, abso- absolutely. And it's it's it, it very much seems to be like a, a policy of containment to try and keep all the all the negative side in there, um, and basically up to about mm, sort of six seven years before. Um, before the current time, it says that uh, it says in the sixth edition, rumors speak of an army gathering within Mousillon, led by a mysterious knight. So you've got that that threat coming in. So, having said earlier, one of the big appeals of Britannia is that it's constantly on the rise. Maybe, maybe it isn't. Maybe we're just not at the end of the Arthurian legend of of Britannia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have that book series to read. Uh, it is uh, very good and. I do indeed. It's uh, Anthony Anthony Reynolds. I seem to remember the author's name is, uh, which starts with um, Knight Errant, which I I received in the post uh, the other day, and um, very much looking forward to reading that because I'm I'm a huge fan of the Felix and Goshek ones, so or, or Goshek and Felix, whichever way you'll have it, and um, so I'm looking forward to reading uh, to broadening my horizons and uh, venturing over the Grey Mountains into Britannia. Yeah. So for anyone who hasn't read that series, it is amazing. It is one of my favorite. Uh, fantasy book series so there are four books and also a couple of short stories I think in the anthology so there's uh, Night Errant, Night of the Realm Questing Knight and Grail Knight um, I actually bought the uh, Night of the Realm book when I was in Portugal in a very British part you couldn't tell it apart from actually being in England itself so I went into like a fully British bookstore and then they had a Blackboard library book size captured by it and it is great so I highly recommend that book series this is one thing I, I, I absolutely love about our hobby is that it's yes it's you know it's popular but it's not necessarily 
um, mainstream. And it's it's when you not when you see a games workshop, but when you stumble upon a store, in, usually in a back alley somewhere you're not expecting to, to, to for there to be a hobby store. And you're just wandering, and then you suddenly see Warhammer stuff. <laughs> And uh, and to stick with the Holy Grail, the Holy Grail is when you wander into one of these stores, and you find Warhammer fantasy stuff still in this box, and that is the Holy Grail. Yeah, I found mine last year. Found a sixth edition starter box in an, in an old model store. It's amazing. Live, live that dream. Uh, all right, so where where do we go from here? About the Bretonian story. Uh well um so there's this this is one 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 small detail that I'd like to I'd like to touch on because I I read it and it it um it it really really uh made me laugh and um this is again about um about worthiness uh you know worthiness for um for being a a Bretonian and I knew I was going to do this and it's disappeared in my notes Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, mm. No, I will. Uh, sorry, I, I I prepared very well for this episode, but I didn't uh, didn't put in bookmarks for it. Uh, ah, yes, here we go. This this detail when I saw it, it really really tickled me. So basically, um, there is as we said, there's there's this really strict class system, which which you know it existed in the real world as well, and to a certain extent, you could argue does still today. Oh yeah, one, one thing on yes. that thing. Uh, one of my favorite comparisons to the real world and Britonia is the 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 law of the tenth that in medieval Europe you had to pay one tenth of what you produce to the church, while in Britonia you keep one tenth as a peasant and then you pay the rest to to your overlord. Absolutely excellent. Yeah, that is the, that is such the a tithe. Good detail. Brilliant. Um, so coming back to yeah to what. You know, what makes you worthy? So, in in Britannia, as perhaps to a certain extent in, in the real world, um, performing a knightly deed as a peasant isn't enough to, to make you a knight. So you do have some people in warfare in, in, in like the Hundred Years' War who get knighted after, after performing great deeds, but they go out of their way in the, in the, in the chronology of the 6th edition to talk about the story of a Britannian peasant. And this is in the in the year fifteen thirty seven, so the imperial year twenty five fifteen, so fairly recent. They talk about this peasant called Hubold, um, and again, it's, it's great because the peasant has a very very Anglo Saxon name as opposed to all the knights who have very sort of Norman French names. And Hubold saves this lady from a beast in a forest, and it says very clearly that he's the only, he's only the third peasant ever to be knighted in, in reward for having having done this great deed. But then it goes on to say that he doesn't survive his first battle. So in Britannian law, yes, in some very rare situations you can be knighted, but your very birth, your very blood means that you're not worthy enough to survive as a knight because he can't survive his, his first battle. And I just thought that was absolutely hilarious you know, that, that detail to specify yeah i can really imagine just someone accidentally shoving him off, off his horse and being trampled to that as well definitely well, there's no, another really really um really uh funny one which is coming back to the role of women uh there's there's talk of one um uh one tournament in which a hundred knights joust 
to have the hand of a lady, so uh, which makes you wonder what the lady was like exactly, or or what her what her what her huge tracts of land were like to uh, to to quote Monty Python. Uh, yeah. So speaking of um, Britannia background, we've been uh, comparing some uh, some editions. Uh, Britannia were only really in the warmer world and in third edition mm. uh, they were in the main army book and then in fourth edition where they were left out and then they had an army book in fifth edition and then in sixth edition and that's it yeah i think that's um obviously i'd love to see britannia in every single edition but I, in a sense a little part of me thinks it, it's it's quite appropriate that something that's that's based on on so heavily in arthurian legend is is difficult to pin down. And it's a bit like the Once and Future King. You hope, you hope that maybe, just maybe, in this edition, it will, um, it will come about. And actually, talking about editions, if we look at the uh, the um, uh, the Old World uh, project that uh, that's been teased by by Games Workshop and the map, which seems to imply it would be in the time of the Three Emperors. If that's the case, then this situates on the Britannian chronology with uh, the affair of the false grail potentially mm. and the rise of the undead that is very which cool. could be absolutely fantastic but let's not hold our breath either um yeah so you just want to uh, talk about the different editions as well the difference between uh and the character of the armies so i've been hearing mostly about the the difference between fifth and sixth edition because they are they are very close and they i've heard that they are pretty different um well, fifth and sixth edition were pretty different in in tone. Yeah, uh, yeah, not so much in the actual lore, I would say, but more in how it was presented with the artwork and the the, the painting of the miniatures. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I basically the for me the big difference between fifth and sixth edition is uh, fun. So there's the artwork difference, but fundamentally, fifth edition was I think the last one which left balance up to the players because you had so so much freedom that you could it was like the last hero hammer edition it was the last one where if you wanted to a supercharged um you know two three heroes dominating the battlefield you you could have that whereas sixth was i think where they accommodated tournaments a bit more and, and ensured that the armies were balanced yeah so um just a shout out to another fantastic uh, fantasy podcast the the crown of command they are more into 5th edition, and I've listened to them talk about Britonia there. They both have an army review, which is more about the units. And then there's uh, a guy that came on uh, from the US that played Britonians in 5th edition. And he said that uh, he thought that the 5th edition one was... Uh, he said that was more Arthurian, and that the 6th edition was more French, kind of. Yeah, I'd agree with that, yeah. Definitely. Uh, but then I was looking at the the third edition army book, uh, and in that the Bretonians seem more like they do in sixth edition. But even grimmer, I would say, like it was even worse to be a peasant back in those days. And uh, even like the all the knights had French names, and all the the shitty infantry had like really. Really bad names as well in English, like rascals and ruffians and just people you don't want to be around. Yeah, so I, I think that's perhaps 
again, if, if we were going to do a historical analogy, that's probably linking Britannia more to um, to the twelfth century, where you, you still very much had the um, you know the consequences of the Norman conquest, and the nobility would be French and the peasants would be English, and you can see that even in the English language today, because if you look at food as it's described it's always words of, of French origin so you've got um, beef like boeuf you've got mutton like mouton but then when you're uh, describing you've got you know, pork like porc but when you're describing the animals in the fields you use the sort of the, the more Germanic or, 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 or Anglo-Saxon terms so, so you've got sheep you've got swine herd and you've got cow so you've got your roles in society clearly defined you've got the uh, you know the the anglo-saxon who's working the fields and you've got the normans who are who are feasting so maybe third ed britannia is 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 closer to that yeah and also a big difference uh, between editions is uh, uh, war machines and especially in third edition where britannia had cannons yeah they like got those, guns <laughs> yeah those big siege guns that uh, that they employed uh, around 1300, I guess, in Europe? Uh, yeah, well, cer- certainly they had them by, by 1400, but yeah, I think you're right, there are, there are in, in 1300 the, the bigger sort of um, uh, more, more sort of breech-loading ones where you take the whole back off the gun and then to load it, it takes half a day because you've got to stick your backpack on and then put the clay on and let the clay dry. And Yeah, and I also think they, actually, they had handgunners as well. So I was, I was looking through the third edition army book and it's very modular like you you pick a unit and then you kind of give them whatever equipment they're they're not as defined in their roles so it was very interesting to see but i like to think uh, that in the history of britonia this did happen that they Mm. did have gunpowder but then the knights realized that the peasants can use these against them and then they just banned them and got rid of them and used to clear it out of their history books now and never never existed sounds legit so in fourth edition though they were very keen not to have any war machines and then in sixth edition they brought back the trebuchet yeah i i think just there are there are some scenarios like particularly if you're playing siege warfare you do need some some war machine i think the um the trebuchet is is um it's in keeping with 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 you know Britannia's vibe, and it's not something where you could bring a whole a whole city crumbling down with a you know w- with a few trebuchet. You could, of course, but if you think of a trebuchet compared to a cannon, it takes a lot more time to assemble. So if you if your peasants are are you know, what's that? Sound? Can you hear a soaring sound? You know, a bit like Monty Python with the. Uh, with the uh, with the war rabbit, the siege rabbits, is you can you can hear that going on for some time. It gives you the time to intervene. Whereas, you know, you can't have peasants just grabbing a few barrels of gunpowder, and um, and and causing havoc. So yeah, I think it works quite nicely. I think it's just that right balance. Yeah. All right. Should we take a break here and then uh, yeah. go through the the actual uh, army in Warhammer Fantasy? Sounds good. And welcome back. I hope you can hear the uh, the wonderful sound of uh, outdoor Albion. Just a few raindrops here and there. Yep, little patter, pitter patter of rain. And now we've got the uh, the sound of Britannia for you. 
if it works. Woohoo! Now this is the next bottle of wine, which I chose. It's a Cayenne, but I chose it purely because it has a French fleur de lis on the front, which seemed the most appropriate uh, symbol for a Britannian episode. Yeah, today has really been, uh, really been uh, Albion weather. Just going by the the weather chart, the best we've had was a light drizzle. Uh, but now we've gone, I would say, down two steps. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely going to be a, a little bit of a challenge for your uh, for your gunpowder weapons, <laughs> which again is a great reason why Britannia doesn't adopt them. <laughs> yeah. So uh, now we're going to talk about the uh, the actual army lists. So we'll. As usual, mostly focus on the 6th edition army list and drawing comparisons to the earlier versions. Uh, and it's also pretty good that we're focused on 6th edition because uh, this is the book that will be used until the end of times. <laughs> and indeed after the end of times. Yeah. Um, so... Mm. So we should maybe uh, maybe start with the the most uh, well one of the one of the two unique things of Britannia, which is the the blessing of the lady. Yeah, uh, I I love this thing. It's just such a characterful rule for your army, and it's uh, it is the only rule I think that just changes the 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 way you play the game, kind of. Like it's not a big change, but it's it affects every game. It's mm. re it's really cool. It definitely does. So, the blessing of the lady is essentially that before the battle begins, the Bretonian army can choose to kneel and pray to the lady, and what that means is that in the time it takes you to pray, your enemy gets to take up their position. So it means that essentially, if you decide to pray and you don't have to. Uh, you always let your opponent play first. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, it, it is good that you know that... Uh, so usually when you deploy, you get a plus one if uh, you deploy first and so on. But if you already know that you're going second, that allows you to deploy in a way where it's not such a negative effect on your your game basically so you can deploy more defensively if you know that you're going to get shot to pieces or whatever so it, it's nice to know that you're going second and then you get a buff so i think 90 percent of the time a bretonian army will pray absolutely and also if you're mounted why wouldn't you if, if you're if you're a largely cavalry army you know that you can you can close the gap quickly so so why not i also generally like to go second anyway because i like to let my opponents make an opening gambit in the hope it's going to give a, a telltale sign of their strategy. doesn't always work, <laughs> but uh, at least I, it, it reassures me. All right, so what do you get for praying? So for praying, uh, basically, uh, broadly speaking, anyone who's a knight or a damsel gets to benefit from the, um, from the blessing. Um, and uh, any mount of, of said model, including if you've got a Hippogriff or a Pegasus. And the benefits are that all models that are affected by the Blessing get a 6-up reward save, and 
if you're fighting against uh, a character who's attacking with strength 5 or higher, that goes to a 5 up ward save. So that's uh, that's not nothing. That's, you know, significantly increasing your, your chances of survival. But of course, peasants are not worthy of knightly protection. Your chivalry does not protect a peasant on the battlefield. Uh, so they don't get to benefit from it. Yeah, and you can also lose the blessing. You can indeed lose the blessing, and basically the way you lose the blessing is by being unknightly, unchivalrous. So if you flee for any reason, the, the character or unit that flees loses the blessing. And if you turn down a challenge, you lose the blessing because it is very unchivalrous to turn away from a fight. So th those are the only two things. They are they are indeed. It differs a bit in um, in fifth edition. The 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 blessing is basically your enemy when when shooting at you has to has to take a test. Yeah. So they have to roll of four or more to be able to even shoot at a knightly unit, but it doesn't affect peasants as well. And then you can lose the blessing by the same thing, uh, fleeing and refus refusing a challenge, but also firing missile weapons at an enemy cavalry unit that has a 4-up or better armor save. So if you, if your army behaves on chivalries, mm. then you lose the blessing for the entire army then, I suppose. Which is really interesting. It very much ties in with the, with the Britannia uh, disdain for, uh, for missile yeah. weapons. They, they can shoot at the, their crap They troops. can shoot at the peasants, yeah, yeah of course, because yeah. peasants aren't protected by chivalry on the battlefield. Definitely. Yeah. So the other big difference between uh, Bretonian and any other army is the page that Joseph is now turned to. Yeah, which is the virtues of the chivalric knight. So lots of armies have, in fact all armies have things like you know, magical weapons, armour, talismans, but only the Bretonians have the virtues. And again, this comes back to uh, sort of Arthurian legends where you've got, you know, Sir Galahad, you know, the pure and Lancelot and so on and so forth. They've all they've each got their own virtue, something that describes them. And in Bretonian um law, it's basically each of the companion of Gilles Le Breton has a virtue that, that was that was like their thing. So you've got the virtue of the penitence, virtue of knightly temper, but then you've got some, some other really interesting ones like virtue of the impetuous knight, which is like um, Gilles Le Breton's son was described as the rash, so you know, really, really impetuous. I just want to say um, comparisons to other armies, I think the High Elves have something similar to this. Similar but not a virtue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like a, an upgrade that is not a magical item yeah. or anything. Yeah, so that, that is true. That so is true. Reflective of their character. They have the pure of heart mm. thing and being a white lion character and stuff like that. And also demons have the demonic gifts, which is kind of similar, that you upgrade them, but it's not a... And equipment. Yeah, there. so you've you've got you've got the sort of different blessings of the gods um, in um, in the um, in in the chaos thing, but they are more something which is um, bestowed on you, whereas a virtue is something which comes from from your behaviour, from yeah. the way you act, from your from your character. Yeah, so there are quite a lot of them, and they are they're really 
good, actually. They like, are. They're, they're very, very good um, value for, for points. So the most expensive one is um, is 40 points. It's Virtue of the Penitence. You've got another one, uh, in fact, three of them that are 40 points. So, for example, Virtue of the Penitence, uh, it makes the knight stubborn, but he can't join any any friendly uh, units. But, uh, you know, if you think about it, one stubborn character can... can can hold up a, an enemy unit for quite some time. Yeah, unfortunately he can't be mounted on a flying mount. That would have been great, just locking up enemy units across the battlefield. Yeah, I, I think I think that we've got enough Royal Air Force without it, <laughs> without that. But one of my favourites is actually the, the cheapest one, which is Virtue of Empathy. It only costs 10 points. But what it means is that the knights can be on foot, because we should say that all Bretonian knights and, and, and knightly characters are... You know, de facto on horse. Yeah, they have least. to take a mount. They have to. So yeah, this is the only way in 6th edition to get characters on foot. And looking back at the Bretonian range, there are a lot of really good uh, foot knights mm. uh, models. Yeah, uh, some really beautiful ones, yeah. Yeah, that is kind of tough to use in 6th edition because... There's only one way to... Yeah, there is. A, yeah, and it's, and it's just virtue and... Um, but it's only 10 points, though. And it should be said that uh, virtues may be taken taken in multiples. Yeah. But if they are, then they're, they cost twice the amount for e- each duplicate to take. Yeah, so so, so like if you've got one night of virtue of empathy, it's 10 points. The second night would have to pay 20 points. The third night would have to pay 30 points and so on and so forth. But the great thing is... Virtue of Empathy allows you to fight on foot. It also means that your leadership sphere for that character, instead of being 6 inches, is 12 inches, which suddenly makes peasant armies that bit more viable. Yeah, and we'll get on to the the peasants themselves, but I don't think they're really that bad. (laughs) Well, they're no worse than goblins, so... (laughs) Which is a compliment of sorts. Alright, so um, just lightly touching on magic items as well. They have a lot of magic lances. Uh, the very cool magic armor that gives uh, the character weapon skill 10. And yeah, and then pretty standard magic items. Nothing yep. that really sticks out. There's a lance that gives killing blow. There's a lance that allows you to reroll two wound rolls. And then that can be... Uh, used in conjunction with uh, uh, what we talked about the the chivalry yeah. trait that allows you to reroll hits so reroll hits and two wounds would be really cool and a shield that gives you a 4 up ward if you already have the blessing and so on uh, yeah nice magic items like looking through the list there's plenty of good options in there nothing I would just dismiss and nothing that I would always include. Yeah, I think that's one of the big challenges with building any any Bretonian army is the the choice. The choice is almost too good. It's like what what do you not take? They they're all great and and none of them are stupid points. Yeah. Actually, I want to think about the the thing that I would always take is the the killing blow lance. It seems yeah. like a, it, it mostly because it's just such an heroic thing. You charge in, and then you do roll that six. Yes. To yeah, kill absolutely. And the, um, the monster or the character. 
and and particularly fitting because if if one of the big enemies of Britannia is the undead, and we know how much a, a jet, how important a general is to an undead army. Yeah. If you get that killing blow, that can that can be a game changer for you. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the uh, the roster. Yeah. The and, unit. and so perhaps before we talk about the units themselves, the one thing we should mention is the the unit formation for the Bretonians, uh for their knights, which is the lance. Um, yes. Now in fifth edition, it looked the coolest <laughs> because basically you had this. Your knights were in a wedge formation, like a triangle, and just the the unit looked so unbelievably cool. But um, I was reading the designer notes from sixth edition, and it's a there are two very good reasons why they they changed it. So it went from being a, a lance formation proper, which is like one guy in the front rank, then two behind him, then three behind that, then four behind that, to being basically um, a column that's three three wide, basically three knights wide. And the first one is it made it uh, way too open to to disputes because if you've got an enemy unit that attacks your lance formation, it's basically attacking not against a straight line but against an imaginary line that's drawn along the, the side of this triangle. So if the base is not physically touching, it's way too too easy to to argue then say, but which which guy is this person in contact with then? So that was confusing. Yeah, it, it's a triangle in a game of squares. Exactly, exactly. It just it just doesn't fit. And again, I think it's very of fifth edition because fifth edition is the last edition where you leave it open to players to just be complete. I and mean, you should always be fair play, of course. That's that's half the fun of it. But um, uh, fifth edition is the last one where they let people just have fun without trying to put some form of control to stop abuses. Um, and the other reason, of course, is. It's really hard to get past uh, terrain features if you know you've got quite a quite a big wedge formation. So having it just three wide meant that suddenly you could have three columns of knights charging in. And the way it works is basically your front three knights can all hit, and then anyone on the side of it can hit, but no one in the middle of the column can hit. So that's that's specific to Britannia. Only Britannia can do it, and I really wish that my really 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 wide really numerous empire army had the option of doing that with its knights because trying to get a whole empire army into contact is really difficult yeah it makes them very maneuverable i think that that's the main thing like you can you can bring to bear a lot of knights into one one place which you can't really do with empire or kislev that matter that's true but the obviously the big disadvantage to that is that your flanks are really really long yeah. so you don't want to leave your flanks exposed as a Britannian and so on to the roster yeah and also one more note on the Britannian army they may not take dogs of war allies they are far too proud of that uh, just yet <laughs> if you look <laughs> to history then maybe give them uh, another 200 years and they might pay some Empire mercenaries or something, uh, and also they may take one more uh, character than other armies. Uh, yeah. So they they can take another hero. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get on to why in a bit. Uh, so first, lords. You have the Bretonian lord. Uh, I was uh, a bit uh, a bit disappointed by his weapon skill, to be honest. So he's uh, movement four like a regular human. Weapon skill six, but it's skill three, but that doesn't matter. 
I'm surprised he has a ballistic skill yeah, at all. Yeah. Uh, strength 4, Terminus 4, 3 wounds, initiative 6, 4 attacks, and leads you up 9. So yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a boss human guy. He's a boss human guy, yeah. Um, yeah, you sort of you you want to because it gives you that extra one in 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 leadership. But um, otherwise, I have to say I'd be given that you get the extra free you know, character slots. I'd I'd be tempted to put all heroes in my army. Um, yeah, it's not terribly expensive though. One hundred and ten points, and uh, he may be mounted on a warhorse, a royal pegasus, or a hippogriff. And yeah, the hippogriff is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, he is indeed. So the hippogriff uh, uh, movement eight when he's uh, when he's uh, when he's on the ground. Uh, weapon skill four, strength five, toughness five, four wounds, initiative four, four attacks, and leadership eight. So is that is that the same stats as a griffin, or is it worse than a griffin? I I think it's slightly. I think it's similar. It's very similar. Um, I would need to check in my in my empire iron book that's that's upstairs. Yeah. So you you usually use a electric cannon and a griffin, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, how would you compare these two? Are they pretty much the same? Yeah, I think I'd, I'd use them in very similar ways. And the key thing is that they've both got they've both got terror. They've yeah. both got a decent attack value. Um, I think they're pretty much identical, actually. I, w- I will check in a moment. Um, and, uh, yeah, I- I'd use them in a very similar way. I- I- actually, I find I find the griffin quite difficult to use because, um, and it's the same with the hippogriff here, you know, they can fly, which is great, really flexible, but you've got a lot of points tied into that one model. Yeah. Um, they cause terror, which is which can be huge, um, you know, like against armies like Skaven or or or, or goblins, um, but at the same time, yeah, it, it's a lot of points, and they. Uh, it's very exposed, Tony. Very exposed, yeah. You've got to get that kill in straight away. So again, if you've got a killing blow here, perfect. Um, if you haven't, you you really want to make sure that you're not going in completely unsupported. Yeah, because as you've noticed as well, just static combat resolution can force him to run away yeah, pretty easily. Yeah, it really can, yeah, really can. Alright, next to uh, the second lore choice, the Prophetess of the Lady, which is a the classic uh, Lord Mage, starts at level 3, can become level 4. Uh, so, Bretonian Magic is one of the weaker, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I'm, it's... Um, Again, coming back to the role of of, of women in Britannian law, they are they are inspiration rather than fighters themselves, and it really shows here. I'm the prophetess, quite expensive, 190 points for level three, um, and um, I'm you you'd use magic in Britannia. You definitely use it because you don't have the war machines, but they only have access to beasts and life. I think. Uh, yeah, so Beast Life and Heavens. Oh, and Heavens. So oh, Heavens can so be right. interesting. Um, beasts is a really interesting one because... It's uh, very situational. It's very situational, we've as we've learned. Um, beasts is great if you are facing any army with a lot of cavalry or monsters. You, it's really useful then because you can completely wrong-foot your enemy. But um, if they don't have cavalry, you're quite limited in how useful the spells are. Um, but heavens can be can be really really useful. Yeah, I mean, heavens has got a like unlimited range or yeah long range damage spells, mm. so they're always going to be good. 
Yeah, definitely. So I yeah, I'd, I'd be very tempted by by Law of Heavens. Um but uh you can only have heavens if you go for the the prophetess. If you have uh, just the hero equivalent, you can't you can't oh, take it. Oh yeah, that that's why. That I is why you have that. Yeah, absolutely. Cuz who would pay for a prophetess if you can have a lord? <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, on to hero choices. We have Paladin, which is one plus choice. It is indeed. And it is a one plus choice because you have to include a army battle standard in a Praetorian army. Yep, definitely. And um, so Battle Sunbearers is one of those things where I'm, I'm st I still can't decide whether, on the whole, they're, they're worth it or not. I've seen arguments on both sides, but when you've got uh, you know your points limits and your limited number of slots for heroes... It's you know it's it's give or take. They're they're quite vulnerable, but they do give you that extra boost. Um, but Britannians, of course, it would be unthinkable to not have your your lords, you know, banner flying in the wind as you charge in there. Yeah. So yeah, looking at it, it, you can have magical banners, and there is a really good one in Britannia that ignores the enemy rank bonus, but that is a hundred points. So you would sink a lot of points into to getting that buff. Yeah, you, you would indeed. Um, though I, I'd say a little part of me really wants to try a really reckless thing, which is giving a knight um, the virtue of empathy so he's on foot. And then the banner of the lady. Um, put that knight in a unit of um, uh, Bretonian peasants and just take that into a tournament to see what happens because I don't think people would expect yeah. to come across a unit of peasants and then not have any rank bonus. But it's I can imagine that if you get a lot of peasants dying, then your rank bonus won't necessarily do that much. But I just I I would just love to see people's faces when you say, Oh yeah, that's the banner of the lady. But yeah. then it would be the most expensive unit of peasants you ever saw. Yeah. But <laughs> Saying that though, paladins are pretty, pretty cheap for what they are. Yeah. I mean, I think they are the same price as a, an empire captain. Yeah, sixty points. You get the the classic heroic stat line, uh, although less skill than a captain, I guess. But that doesn't so matter again, because skill, yeah. not really yeah. chivalrous. Weapon skill five, strength four, toughness four, two wounds, initiative five, three attacks, leech base, and uh, all peasants get to use. Any nice leadership within six usually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, they're great. Yeah. Well, of course, the challenge with Britannia is that um, you know, your knights are very fast and your peasants are very slow, unless you've got mounted squires. Um, so how do you how do you get them to keep that that aura of influence? Um, yeah. Which is which is where empathy comes in, I guess. Yeah. All right. Um, oh yeah, and they can be mounted on bartered war horses or Pegasi. Yeah, and they've, they've got lots of toys to choose from, um, including the Morning Star, which uh, which it just, it just looks so cool. <laughs> yeah, it might not be that great, but it just looks really cool. Um, and the second hero choice is the Damsel of the Lady. Yeah, so this is a lot more a lot more viable. It's it's seventy points for level one, so you can have your nice scroll caddy. Tucked into the middle of a um, uh, a convoy of knights, you know, a lance formation of knights. So yeah, I think I think it's well, it's definitely worth it. I I I wouldn't say no personally. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I would say it's more of a you get the benefit of being a caster, but it's not really viable as a caster. Like it won't really do much. Like 
it's it's not worth investing in a magic heavy Bretonian army. No, I well, I I'd be I'd love to see someone. Please do write into the podcast uh, if you've ever tried being magic heavy Bretonian. Um, I'd love to hear the results because yeah, maybe we'd be surprised. Maybe maybe simply virtue of the unexpected. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. All right, on to the the regiments then. Yeah, absolutely. So should we start with the Knights of the Realm? Yeah. So they are also a one plus choice. Yeah, you, you have to include them. In you your have armor. to have them. You have to have them, and um, you know they are they're pretty decent. They're twenty four points, uh, weapon skill four, uh, strength three, but obviously they've they've all got lances, um, initiative three, and leadership eight. So a good solid unit. And elite humans. Yeah, elite humans, and one of the things that's great about Britannia is that, um, here's a perfect example, you have to have a champion, but the champion doesn't cost you any extra. So that yeah. front rank gets an extra attack, basically, at no extra points. Um, and that's, that's a, not nothing, because, you know... That's great. Yeah, champions, they're, they're often the same price as a standard bearer, and here, the standard bearer is worth 16 points, so... That saving is sixteen points for each unit of, uh, of 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 Knights of the Realm. Yeah, so these are great. Yeah, they're a great core unit. I think the the downside of them is that they are only strength three, so all these strengths five on the charge. But comparing to uh, uh, inner circle knights, they can boost themselves to be strength four, and uh, yeah, strength three to strength four with the lands it's a big difference like being strength 5 or strength 6 is huge mm. uh, when you're facing toughness 4 opponents yeah. and also the heavy armor I've noticed that with my my Kislevites uh, the the difference between regular winged lancers and the Griffon Legion with the strength bonus is huge mm. yeah yeah. I, I found the same, the same reason why I usually on, on the advice of, a, of another um, contributor to this podcast and, and, and regular opponents is to take Empire Knights as inner circle because you can only do one uh, or technically two if you take um, White Wolf as inner circle too but just that extra one in strength really does make the difference but one thing we should say about the, the Knights which we, we didn't mention earlier is um, the Vows Yes. so the Knights of the Realm have the Knights Vow which basically means that Knights are um, they ignore panic caused by um, peasants, basically. Yeah, like orcs and goblins. Yep. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's a good thing that we we mentioned that. So yeah, you have the nice vow, and then you have the questing vow. Yep. Which uh, allows you to re-roll psychology tests and ignore peasants as well. Yep. But you can't take a lance, whether magical or mundane. Yeah, and you can't be joined by characters with the knight's vow. So it's like a pyramid shape with the mm. vows and then finally you have the grail vow um, where you have seen the grail and you, you are blessed and you Im you're immune to psychology all your attacks counts as magical whether with a magical or a mundane weapon and you can only be joined by another character with the grail vow so yeah I don't know if we, we mentioned that but like yeah you have the regular knights and then you have the questing knights that are out looking for the grail and then yeah. you have the people that have seen the grail. And all your characters can... They start with the, the Night Vow, and then they can be upgraded for mm. point cost to be Questing Knights or Grail Knights. Yeah, and there's a really interesting bit actually in the in the 6th edition book where you see 
uh, King Luonelka's um, heraldry, and you see it evolving. So it starts with just a, with just a um, just a lion, and then as he progresses, you have the different stages. So he becomes knight of the realm. And he's got like um, a golden outline. He's got parchment attached to it. Then he's a questing knight, and he's got a um, you know uh, another um, symbol attached to it. Um, and then he, he sees the Grail. He's got a the, suddenly the lion is holding a Grail, and so on and so forth. It comes mm. Duke against the sword. Yeah, I really like the king. the questing knight shield. It just looks so beat up, like it's been on yeah. the road for a long time. Oh, it's, it's looking it's for brilliant. the Grail. Yeah, yeah. So it's and that's 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 great. I think the thing about returning heraldry with it all telling a story is is just fantastic. Yeah. Alright, so that's the Knight of the Realm, and then you have the Knight Errant. Yeah, so the Knights Errant are basically they're they're out um, they're out looking for trouble. You know, they're they're looking for a mission. It's the young, the impetuous. They are they just they just want to fight. Um, and in fact, they they have the special rule of impetuous. So they cost twenty points, so four points less than Knights of the Realm. No, no minimum number of, of of knights errants, but you can have as many units as you want. Uh, any units five up um, in terms of numbers. Um, they're very similar in terms of equipment to knights of the realm, but their weapon skill is three and their leadership is seven instead of being four and eight. I don't know if we said that, but knights of the realm and knight errant have heavy armor and barded warhorses. Yeah. And another note on Bretonian Warhorses, they ignore the barding penalty. So they are movement 8, and they charge 16, so they don't get minus 1. Which makes me very better as a Kislev player. <laughs> like, what's the point of not having barding when everyone else just ignores it? Or has a 1 plus armor save? Uh, but yeah, Knight Errant, they get the, the negatives of... Uh, uh, what's it called? Rage, but uh, impetuous. Yeah, but um, mm. the the rule that all the corn guys have, they get plus one attack, but they have to charge the closest enemy. But the knight errant don't get plus one attack, but they still have to to, to charge the the closest enemy. Uh, yeah, it's impetuous. In, in so in um, yeah, so it's called rage, I think, in, yeah. in for corn, but it's called impetuous here. So basically, after charges have been declared, if any impetuous knights did not declare a charge but are within charge range of an enemy, they must take a leadership test to restrain themselves. Oh, and if yeah. they fail, they charge. Yeah, so they, yeah, at least they get a leadership test. So you could put a hero in there to give them leadership eight. Um, yep. Otherwise, yep. you have to test on leadership seven, or they would have to charge the closest yep. enemy. I have seen knights errant used in uh, in very small units to effectively do the role of uh, of light cavalry. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you can see that. Like you yeah. give them a musician. Yeah, hundred points for five. Yeah, why not? D and do yeah. they also get a free champion? Uh, no, they. Uh, no, sorry, they do. They do. Yeah, yeah. They, they get a cavalier in yeah. this case. That's pretty decent then. Yep. Yep. All right, moving on to the the lowborn. Yeah, the peasants. And the peasants are so cheap. It's fantastic. So, okay. Men-at-arms and bowmen, both of them have weapon skill 2. So they're not going to do much damage um, in, in close combat. But um, the great thing about the peasants is uh, if you lose a 
peasants' standards in battle, you don't actually lose the victory points for it because they're insignificant. It's so funny. It's a hundred points. It's a lot of points, really. It is a lot of points, yeah. Uh, and like, they're they're the enemy deem their banner to be worth less than a skaven banner or yeah. a goblin banner, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Right? Imagine what what are they even hanging up there? Just like dirty old socks? Or yeah, something? socks. It's their laundry. It's laundry day. We just got caught out in the middle of the laundry day and went into battle. <laughs> it's great. But so men at arms, they cost five points. Yeah. Weapon skill two. Strength 3, Toughness 3, 1 Attack, Leadership 5. You don't really care too much about the leadership if you can keep them close to a knight. Um, and again, if they if they flee, they don't cause panic in your army because the, the knights all just ignore it. So that's absolutely fine. Equipped as standard with shield, light armour and pole arm, which counts as a hellbar, so plus 1 strength. That is so great. That's so great. But like usually you would have to pay to even have armour and pay to have a shield yep. and pay for the halberd. Yeah. You just look at your Empire troops, they're... Exactly, yeah. So expensive. You'd be like seven, eight points for that, so five <laughs> points here, um, which is great because it means you can choose between using your, your Halbard um, you know, to, to fight, or you can do your Hand Weapon and Shield, which automatically gives you like... You know, four up? Four up, exactly. It's great. Four up for a, for a peasant, not bad. Uh, literally, this is why I was talking about the, the having the... Um, the banner of the lady with a knight uh, with with um, vow of empathy is because all they have to do is not bleed too quickly, and suddenly they become useful, um, which is really interesting. Mm. And um, and again, if we're doing the analogy with with history, if you look at the pipe rolls of of Henry V in his Agincourt campaign, um, you can see how how why he had so many archers. They're just so 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 cheap. And it's really reflected here. The peasants in Britannia are cheap. So you move on to bowmen, six points. Ballistic skill, three. Mm, not great, but then no worse than an empire guy. Um, and you can have a, a villain. So again, going back to the, 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 the Anglo-Saxon terminology yeah, in, in, in third edition. Villain gets you to the, the magnificent ballistic skill of four. Again, leadership, five. Mm. Not really that, that that necessary. You can give them light armor if you want. I probably wouldn't bother because it's no. one point and I, most I, stuff can get through. My my rule of thumb is uh, never give anything light armor unless you can also give them a shield. Yep, I agree with that entirely, um, with the exception of pistolers, of course. <laughs> uh, and um, you can give well, they automatically get defensive stakes. So you've got um, there's there's very much a um, you know an Agincourt thing going on here, where they the archers planted stakes that they that they sharpened, um, and and you can tell how effective they are because the French cavalry wouldn't charge. It took the archers moving forwards, planting the stakes again and starting to shoot at the French knights for them to charge. So that's very much carried through into Bretonian law, and um, and yeah, they're they're very cool. Or counts like a. A wall. It right? does. Yeah, it's basically a wall. So if you get if you're standing behind it, and don't move, you you keep it. But if you move, it yeah, you lose you, you lose it. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, so. and if the enemy charges you while you're behind this wall of stakes, then they can only hit you on sixes. Yeah, which is, you know, again, like, just all we're asking is that you don't bleed too quickly. <laughs> that's that's literally the job description. Um, or you can pay one point per character per um, per model. 
and upgrade them to skirmish, which basically makes them squires from from fifth edition. Yeah. So yeah, he's touching on that uh, the difference between sixth, uh, fifth, and sixth edition uh, with the unit choices. You had men at arms, and then you had bowmen, and then you also had squires, mm. and you had mounted squires. So we'll get onto it, but. The squires in fifth edition were pretty modular. Modular. They were. They were. They started out as skirmishers, with close combat weapons, and then you could buy bows or buy spears and stuff. Uh, but yeah, they basically rolled that into the bowmen here because I don't think you would ever use a skirmish unit with spears in the first place or yeah. with swords. Yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah, they just made them into an upgrade for the peasant bowmen here. And a lot cheaper than they were in fifth edition because they used the bows for four points. You yeah, told yeah, me, yeah, absolutely, great. yeah. So, um, fifth edition, everything started cheap, but then you had to pay so, 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 so much to get the the extra kits, which is why you can understand it being another hero hammer. Because, like, if you're if you're talking about like add, you know, almost doubling the points value of your of your squire just to give him the basic fighting kits, you'd be like, well, I'll just get another hero. Yeah. All right, on to special on to special choices, and and you've got some some beauties here. I I find it so hard to choose between them. I I don't want to say no to any of them. In fact, I I want more than one of some of them. So the first one is uh, the questing knights. Twenty eight points per model. Uh, as we heard earlier, if you've got um, the questing vow, you can't have a lance. So instead, you get your hand weapon. A great weapon, which are usually exquisite swords, heavy armor, and shield, and um, which can seem a bit odd having shield and and great weapon. But frankly, um, why you know if you're if you're facing a, a shooting army, you want that um, you, you you want that 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 shield against attack. So I was distracted because there's a leak that starts in the roof, which really shows how uh, you know. Maybe I'm aspiring to be a knight, but uh, but really living in the dwelling of a peasant. So I'm just going to put a bucket under that and let uh, let Nicholas continue. So yeah, we have the questing knights. Uh, they they have strength four actually. Other than that, they have the same uh, same stats as uh, neither realm. And as uh, you heard, they have great weapons. Um, Grey weapons compared to a lance, I mean, they do the same thing on the charge, and besides the fact that you don't get your your shield in the fight, but if you kill all your enemies, it doesn't matter that much, and also in the the next fighting round, you still get your strength bonus. Um, yeah, I would say with with questing knights, there are so many good options in the special units mm. as Joseph said that I would be hard pressed to take questing knights because you have Knights of the Realm that are really good on their own as a yep. core unit and then we'll get on to the Grey Lights. So like you, you have you have that slot filled for knights and then the special choices are kinda what you would use to mm. to complement your army. Yeah, I see that point of view, but um, but as an Empire player who played with uh, with knights with strength three, um, I know that you you stay you stay bogged down for so long if if that first charge doesn't do it you stay bogged down. So yeah. yes, questing knights are more fragile because when you get in there you haven't got your shield so that extra that extra bit of save. But you've got a great weapon and you've got strength four, and so I just think, well, ah. yeah, yeah, that is. 
I didn't think actually think of this before when I made my analysis of Bretonian units, but that yeah, they do have strength four, and that is yep. great. Yeah, strength six every so strength round. Strength six every round, even though you strike glass when you're not charging. Um, yeah, but it's the the four special choices are really hard to choose between. Yeah, and they they don't even have that many. I like my dwarf army has uh, like one, two, three, four, five, six special choices, and they're, they're really hard to choose between. But yeah, you have four here, but they're equally hard to choose between yeah, because they're they they're very different. All right, and the next one is uh, zero to one Pegasus Knights. Mm-hmm. So Pegasus Knights were not in the earlier editions. You could have a hero on a Pegasus, but you couldn't have a unit of Pegas Pegasi. Pegasi, yeah, yep. And I really, really like the Pegasi. So actually, I was thinking earlier if I would do a Bretonian army, it would be what it's dubbed the Royal Air Force. Mm-hmm. Which, I, I don't like this. Do they have, the, like, a, a term for an army build? I mean, an Empire army with knights is not called the Imperial Stables or anything? No, because, because you know, not that many people do it. It's usually, but you have the Empire gun line, which is derided for being a bit too easy. Yeah. Well, I, I think it, it, it would just be really cool. It would be a very fantasy thing. Because I think... It, uh, and a friend of mine told me, like, we were discussing fantasy armies, and he said that he didn't li- really like Bretonia because they were too too much anchored in the, the real world. And they were just, there was not, not enough fantasy in it. And I think Pegasus is, like, what really brings out the, the fantasy element. Yeah, which is, so there's, I, I, I take two, two very brief points on that. One is anchored very much in the real world. Yes, um, that is something which the Perry twins said, is that they deliberately wanted uh, the Bretonians that they were sculpting to be Hundred Years' War French. That's what they wanted. Um, And so it's perhaps understandable that they went off and and formed their own company that focused entirely on on historical um, figurines. And the other point is, um, in terms of the the Royal Air Force and, and saying it could be quite cool. Yes, I think I think if you have a convincing narrative behind any army, I'm then fine with whatever you build. My problem is only when someone optimizes a list and then can't give me a valid reason why these units would be fighting together. So no, Royal Air Force I have no problem with because it's a valid narrative. So on to the actual unit and what we're talking about. So the Pegasus Knights, they, if you don't know what a Pegasus is, it is a horse with wings. It is indeed. So uh, the Pegasus is in um, Greek mythology and it's uh, Bellerophon who rides the Pegasus. So he he comes across this, there's this mythical horse with wings that the, the villagers are talking about and no one can tame it. It's just, it's too unruly, it's too wild. And Bellerophon uh, finally manages to to tame it, and then people come from all across Greece just to see Bellerophon riding it. And um, if you want to go way, 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 way more recent, um, uh, it was uh, I believe it was Daphne du Maurier, the crime writer, whose husband uh, was one of the people responsible for forming the um, the uh, British Airborne who suggested to him that he use Bellerophon on a Pegasus as their motto, which is why you have now Pegasus Bridge in Normandy from the Airborne campaign, and now 
back to Warhammer. <laughs> yeah, and they do have the, the Pegasus on their emblem as well. Yeah, on the, on the epaulets, yeah, which is the letter from the Pegasus. And nice. now, the next bottle of wine, which is a, a, a lovely little uh, tour du Omelin, so the high windmill, which I thought would be a nice analogy with the peasants. Uh, Alright, so Pegasus Knights are basically just Knights of the Realm. Uh, weapons go for strength 3, toughness 4 though, which is really big, toughness 4, yep. no other Knights have that. Uh, 2 wounds to represent their big flying horses. Initiative 4, 1 attack, leadership 8. And they start with lances and heavy armor and shield. And as I said, they are a series of 1 choice, but if you include a lord on a royal pegasus that differs slightly that it has three wounds so it's more of a monster um, so yeah the, you have the pegasus and the lord and their different profiles where here you have one profile like flying cavalry which is uh, yeah I think this is the first time that they have like a different unit type really mm. in 6th edition yeah. because yeah. that's more of a later edition thing that you have monsters cavalry and Monsters creatures in general. So you have your, your flying cavalry. Um, yeah, they're fifty-five points a model. It's pretty pretty expensive. It's, it's quite expensive. Um, yeah, they're really good though. So um, when uh, I went to a doubles tournament in Poland, and my uh, partner was playing Bretonia, and he had three Pegasus, I think. And he constantly told me that they were the men of the match. They really made a difference. Yeah, I can, I can, I can entirely believe that. Um, I can believe that, and uh, and so I, I won't be taking any, for reasons I'll explain later. But I, I would love to take them, but I won't. Yeah, the, the reason I love them as much, so much as well is that there, there is such a different thing in the Praetorian army, because you kind of have you have knights and peasants. Mm -hmm. And they have their roles, and then you don't really have anything else. And then you have the flying knights, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they come from the from the um, Paravon region, which is basically um, right on the on the eastern side of Bretonia, uh, near the Grey Mountains. Yeah. So you, yeah, straddling in the Grey Mountains next to the dwarves there, and really close to Athelorn as well. The wood elves. Um, and their symbol is a prancing pegasus. It is indeed, yeah. It is indeed. Alright, on to the next special choice. I think I'll hand this over to yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. This so, is so close to your heart. This is very close to my heart. So again, so we're coming we're coming right back into Arthurian legend. And it's the Grail Reliquary with Battle of Pilgrims. So a bit of the a bit of the law behind this is that the the Grail pilgrims worship the Grail knights so much that you know when a Grail knight dies they basically take his cadaver and they parade it like like a um, I don't know like it's it's a symbol it, it's it's for them it's it's the Grail it's they they just carry it with them and I think. I think, uh, and actually, someone on Instagram recently um, was was talking about this uh, to me. It's very similar to the um, the Fisher King in uh, Percival by Chrétien de Troyes, where it's this 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 king who is who is both blessed and damned, um, 
because he's he's seen the grail and he's been pierced by the lance that pierced Christ and the lance is always bleeding the, sp the spear rather is always bleeding and he can't be separated from it but every time he he sees it he bleeds again it is it, really it's this is so we you know this is right in the essence of Arthurian legend and it is absolutely fantastic so it's 118 points um it's grail and six battle pilgrims so it, it's unit strength six grail relic it's not the grail right yeah no it's the grail relic not yeah exactly not the grail but i yeah I, and this is again this is the thing it is that it's for them it's it's as close as 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 a, a peasant will ever get to the grail it is worshipping a grail knight and we heard earlier how anyone who has seen the grail has this this aura about them they are they are touched by the divine and it's as close as you get to religion in Britannia which is again something I love about Britannia yeah. it is you have this this it's holiness a, but you don't have a, a you don't have one divine yeah it's very cool as well that it is the only faction besides chaos that is really like you have palpable effects mm. of religion in the army yeah a a absolutely absolutely and um so you can you can have additional uh pilgrims to go with it but basically the the, the shrine is it's placed in uh in the center uh like a you know like a stand bearer or a musician um it's got armor save of five plus which in close combat is up to four plus um so rather like having um hand weapon and uh and shield with, with with light armor ups you to to four plus, and it counts as a stand bearer, and a uh, and a musician. And um, it's uh, so it means that the entire unit is affected by the blessing of the lady, because they're just so so pious. It's really interesting. It's that they're not knightly; they're pious, and that that. That distinction, I think, is 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 really clear. These these are peasants. They can never be knights, um, as we saw it in, in the case of the the poor knight earlier who 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 died in his first battle. They can't be knights. They can never be knights. There's in what world, William Thatcher, could you ever have been me? To quote a knight's tale, they they can't be knights, but they are. They're blessed because of their attachment to to the Grail, and they they've got hatred. And they're stubborn. And again, it comes back to all I want is for you to not die quickly. Stubborn. What more do you want? Yeah, they're... leadership eight. Yeah, leadership eight. Leadership eight. One hundred eighteen points for 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 the Grail and six pilgrims. You can get more pilgrims for nine points per model. I'm having this. This is this is <laughs> this is. Yeah. What more do you want? Peasants who don't die quickly. Who have a decent leadership? Who are stubborn? Like that's just you're, you're just plopping a roadblock there. I think the difficulty with this it's it's the typical difficulty with Bretonian armies that have lots of peasants, which I'm determined to overcome, <laughs> is to to get your peasants up there fast enough for them to make a difference. But I think that I think there are some scenarios where this would be really handy. To just Plop that robot down there. Um, I, I love it. I love it just just for the symbology. I'm going to take it, even if it does nothing. 
Yeah, that's what great. Sold. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about your your own. We relic, will indeed. Right? I've been holding back, yeah. desperately holding back. <laughs> All right. So the last special choice is the mounted yeoman. Yes, and I've heard you bad mouthing the yeoman. Yes. Well, oh yes, oh, I've heard. On, uh, let's, let's just row back a few months to an, an old world episode talking about cavalry. Yeah, like cavalry, I think. Yeah. Yeah, like cavalry, where you said, I can't think of a single purpose for the yeoman where there isn't another army that's got a better version of it. Yes, I hold true to those words, but Bretonia doesn't have a better alternative, so they have to turn to the mounted yeoman. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree entirely. Um, so yeah, they're a light cavalry unit in an army full of heavy cavalry. They are, and they are um, expensive for a light cavalry unit. They're fifteen points uh, without light armor. Yeah, so they start with hand weapons, spear, and bow. So yeah, you you have to pay for both the spear and bow because the spear does give you plus one strength on the charge, and you do have a bow. Uh, but they are weapon skill three, ballistic skill three. Strength, toughness 3, mm-hmm. 1 wound, initiative 3, 1 attack, leadership 6. So pretty mediocre human stats. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you compare this to an Empire Pistolier, which is not much more expensive than this. No, um, are they 17? Yeah, about that, yeah. So there's um, the Empire Pistolier where you're charging in, you've got your two shots with the Fusiad rule. Yeah. The armor piercing, strength 4. It's, yeah, leadership it's 7 as well, lighter armor. Uh, or compared to an Ungol horse archer, which is uh, 17 points, though. It's more expensive, yeah, but it's yeah. ballistic skill 4, which really makes up for it. You don't have the spear, but you don't really need the spear, to be honest. If you can just shoot your enemy dead instead. Yeah. And they are a core unit instead of a special unit. That's uh, my partner and the double tournament was very envious of them being a core unit instead mm. of a mounted or a special unit where you have to. You really have to pick. Do you want Pegasus Knights and something else and a mounted yeoman, or do you just want more of the good stuff? It's, it's a little harder when it's a special unit compared to a core unit. Yeah. I'd, I'd love... So I would love, in neither world, you'd have a mounted yeoman as, as a core unit, and I would do a virtually all-peasant army. Um, that's a dream. Yeah. So the thing, though, know, with mounted yeoman I was thinking about is that you can you can still put a knight in them, without having any virtues for it because yes it kind of goes the the pyramid of uh, uh, vows you can still have like a grey light with peasants uh, if they're mounted mm. it's nothing re- prohibiting it so you could put a pretty killer character in a, a light cavalry unit which would be pretty good because you can easily get just right up to a flank and free reform anyway and then uh, try and flank charge enemy. Yeah, that's an interesting point actually, because um, the the vows, the pyramid of vows, um, and you've also got peasants' duty, by the way, which we, we didn't mention, but we kind of did because it just means that peasants have um, the leadership of any knight with any non-fleeing knight again, back to the chivalry code within six inches. But no, you're, you're, you're right. It does say, so a Grail Knight can't be joined by a Questing Knight, and uh, a Questing Knight can't be joined by a Simple Knight, but nothing in there prohibits them joining a unit which doesn't have a Knightly Vow at all. Yeah. Just want to give a shout-out to the, the artwork in the 6th edition Britannian book as well. It's a reason alone 
to get this book. It's just exquisite. So good. It's, when you were flipping through the, the mm. Vow page, it was... I love that page. I love the artwork. Mm. So yeah, that, that's a use for the, the mounted yeoman as well. Just put a character in there, make them really killy, get some flank charges. Otherwise, they're it's a good uh, unit to harass. Yep. Yeah, I, I think they, they, they have their use. And yeah. the, the thing, though, uh, my friend uh, pointed out was any job that the mounted yeoman can do, uh, a squadron of Pegasus Knights can do better. Yeah, for a lot more points. Yeah, I mean, not that much more. Well, yeah, yeah, because... Uh, Three the... Pegasus Knights can probably outperform seven or eight Mounted Yeoman any time. Yeah, but three Pegasus Knights are, are what, 100 and my maths are failing me, 175? 165? 165 points uh, against, like, five times 15. Yeah. Like, there's a big difference there. Yeah, it's true. But big, with big the, the limited amount of special choices, I would put a you know Pegasus Knights first and then go from there. Yeah, I can I can see the I can see the logic. Um I can see the logic. But I, I, I would still hesitate because um I mean, what are you gonna use your Pegasus Knights for? Like yes, they, they can take out war machines, but they're gonna have to take them out quickly, um and and you know, and then go on to do more stuff because um like your cannons are hundreds, hundred and ten points. So well, let, let's do the rest of the unit, and then we'll do. And then uh, we'll debate. Yeah. <laughs> and then we we'll, could be here all night. No, then, I can, I can, I can see why Pegasus Knights are highly valued, and I think it's because they're so highly valued that I'm, I'm, I'm being stubborn. <laughs> so on to the two rare units, yeah. which is pretty typical of uh, sixth edition. You have two rare units. Yeah, and um, so and Empire's got. Two well, three rare if you count dogs of war. Otherwise, it's got flatulence and and hell blaster. Um, and sorry, we have to apologise if you can hear it's like scratching sounds. The black terror, uh, who is one of my cats, uh, has entered the room. Um, and the two red units could not be more different if you tried. <laughs> we have the field trebuchet, which is peasants building stuff from wood, and the Grail knights, yeah. who have seen the Grail. Whom the lady has decided are the worthiest of the knights in the land. And a, a reminder again, Lancelot never saw the Grail. He was unworthy because of his love for Guinevere. So the Grail knights. I would always take them. Every army I would build with Bretonia, I think I would try and take them. They're they're so good. So they 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 are armed like a regular knight with lance and shield and heavy armor and bartered warhorse. And they are uh, weapon skill 5, strength 4, toughness 3 like a human, 1 wound, initiative 5, and 2 attacks. 2 attacks and leadership 8. No many units have 2 attacks. No many elite units have 2 attacks. It's like chosen chaos knights and chosen chaos warriors. They're, they're so great. And uh, since they are grey knights and they have the the Grail Val. All of their attacks counts as magical, so they can kill ethereal creatures mm. and get rid of demon saves. They start the game with a blessing whether or not you prayed. And they are immune to psychology. They're so good. Yeah. And on top of that, they have the special rule of living saints, which means that if you issue a challenge 
to a unit which has uh, to a unit of Grail Knights accompanied by a Lord or a hero. Any single one of those Grail Knights can accept the challenge. Yeah. They're, yeah, um, with their two attacks, they're basically all champions. It's a unit of champions. Mm. They are fantastic. They are so, so good. So I'm not going to take them. <laughs> they're just too good. No. Uh, right. Next choice is the Field Trebuchet. Yeah, the Field Trebuchet. So it's 90 points. It's it's basically uh, um, a catapult, a rock lubber. Um, Strength 10, 5, though. That yeah. is a big difference. Yeah. Uh, which I've noticed is a huge difference using my Dwarf Artillery with the Rune of Penetrating. That gives them plus one strength. Uh, the Small Blast being strength five instead of strength four is so good. Because of... Uh, the the most like You're mostly going to shoot at toughness three units. And wounding on twos instead of threes is a huge difference. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I love it. See, so, yeah, I, I would, I would, I prefer this to the Grail Knights personally because it's uh, ninety points as well. Ninety points. That's that's good for for an artillery piece, yeah. um, and the only like shooty shooty that you can take properly. Yeah, I, I, I love it. Yeah. So, yeah, the trebuchet. I mean, it depends on the army that you're making, which is what we will be discuss discussing now or soon after we used gloss over the the special characters I would say. Yep. So we have the Green Knight yeah. and the Yeah so you Fae Enchantress and King Leon Leonke. Yeah, so we won't get to too much detail about the special rules. Um you can you can read those in your own time, but um the Green Knight is he's he's absolutely fantastic. Um and uh, you know he's expensive but he's he's got great stats, he's got great special rules. But what makes him so fantastic is um, the narrative again. The narrative, the um, the the origin of the Green Knight, and you know it's it's absolutely fantastic. And I was distracted because I was pouring wine. But um, so basically, um, bear with me for one moment. We'll be with you after a short commercial break. Uh, so the Green Knight is he was written uh, written into Arthurian legends uh, first um, by so this is a great thing this person known only to us as the Gawain poet we 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 know almost nothing about him all we know really is that he was either from the north of England or the Midlands that he lived around fourteen hundred and literally that's it. Um, but there's this whole tale about Sir Gawain, who, um, who is uh, at the court of King Arthur, and we'll go into more detail later, but basically he's challenged to strike the Green Knight, um, and uh, the Green Knight says, you hit me with my axe, and then I'll hit you with my axe. And Gawain goes, yeah, no problem, mate, like, I'll decapitate him, job done. And then I won't hear anything. And he decapitates his Green Knight. And then the Green Knight picks his head up and says, I'll see you in a year's time and then I get to hit you. It's an absolutely fascinating story. 
and there are some great, great, great translations of it. Um, so I know a lot of people like Tolkien's translation, and who I wouldn't? see it here in your bookshelf. Yeah, and it's right there. But my favourite version is by Simon Armitage, who was a, a poet laureate, uh, because he brings it back to to the the northern you know, topography and language in there. It's a very northern language. So this is the same time as Chaucer. Anyway, the Green Knight in Britannia, as in Arthurian legend, is basically a personification of nature. And it is, without a doubt, the single most beautiful, simple Warhammer model I have ever seen. And the eBay prices reflect that. Um, and I, but I've got him. I've got him. I recently managed to track down the shield that I'd lost. Um, and I'll be I'll be painting him. Next, you've got the Fey Enchantress. Oh, just uh, a quick mention of what the, the Green Knight does. He he appears in uh, features of terrain, right? In yeah. forests, yeah. and just roll for him, and then he appears there, and then he can charge an enemy, and then if you manage to kill him, there's a chance that he will reappear again. So you mm. you will never be sure that you kill him. Yeah, he's great. And again, it comes back to this Arthurian intangible aspect of, of law which I think is is, is absolutely fantastic and, and there's so many mentions in medieval history and even you know, t- to this day that you can find in the landscape of chapels just in the woods like not far from where I live in Hertfordshire there's a tiny 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 chapel just lost in this patch of woods in the middle of a field and you would not know it exists without Google Earth you just you know it's great I think it's fantastic it just it's you, you're never far from the Green Knight. <laughs> Next, you've got the Fair Enchantress, and she is basically, she is the Lady of the Lake. She she appears to the Knights of Britannia. She deems if you are worthy or if you are not. She's she's very expensive. I don't know if you want to say any more about this. She's a a mage, right? I don't I yeah. don't even know much about her to be honest. And I think that's very fitting. Um, it's she's she's quite a mysterious character. Um, She's got, you know, her chance of potions, her girdle of gold. Um, and actually, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting um, in in Arthurian legend, for example, that the uh, the, the, the scabbard, like the sort of girdle, if you like, the scabbard is worth more than Excalibur the sword because while Arthur is wearing the scabbard, he can't be harmed, which isn't the case with Excalibur. She writes the... Uh... One of the only unicorns in the, yep. the fantasy world as well. Yep, absolutely. She is Hone. <laughs> with her unicorn horn. And the last character in Sixth Ed is uh, Laurent Leoncoeur, which we mentioned earlier, like Louis VII, Richard Carillon. He is just a dude. And he is an extremely spent, expensive dude. 728 points. Like, yeah. He writes the uh, hippogriff. He does, yep. Does it have a name? Uh, yeah, he does. I'm desperately trying to remember what the hippogriff's name. Berkis. Uh, Berkis. Um, so I'm. If we were bring back the real world, like they are, like you know, like beautiful, um, I guess. But he causes terror, um, which they all do. Um, but yeah. Again, we could, we could go into great detail about the rules, but um, yeah. I think you, you can all read that in your own time. Um, but there is a absolutely wonderful piece of artwork um, on the left-hand page of, of Lorne Elker's profile, 
which is a, a, a nobleman or knight who has brought in the head of a beastman. And you do, in the in the Bretonian chronology, find these mentions of, of... They're never too precise, but there's just something living in the woods. And just the artwork is brilliant. It's the knight's throne, the severed head of a beastman on the floor, as if to say, look, I told you this was real. Look at what's inhabiting our woods. And Luan's just leaning forwards in his throne and going, like... Argh. I knew it. I knew it. None of you councillors told me, but I knew. I knew deep down, even though I didn't do anything about it. I knew that this was happening. Deal with it. Yeah, and one of the coolest characters ever is standing to Lewin's right, on the yeah. left-hand side of the page. It's just a knight wheeling. It's like a mace shaped like a fleur de lis. Yeah, and he's just, just. Drowning in candles. He's got candles all over him. Yeah, absolutely. So he's got like a like a a, a I suppose a bishop's hat, for want of a better world. And he's he, words, and he's got candles uh, standing out. And if I had to make a comparison historically, I would say that this is very, very, very reminiscent of uh, William the Conqueror's half brother Odo, uh, who was a bishop, Bishop of Bayeux, who was purportedly the person behind the Bayeux tapestry. Um, and there was this whole thing in um, doctrinal law whereby members of the clergy weren't allowed to spill blood. So instead of spilling blood, they would carry maces and they would just break bones. So, yeah, he, he's very cool. He's very sister of battle Yeah, but very you know, gothic. But a dude, basically. <laughs> yeah, so those are the... Special characters? They are indeed. That's it. That's that's Britannia. So yeah. there's there's so much you can do with this army. Yeah. I so my my biggest complaint with this army is that I I I see it used again and again, always in the same way, and it's understandable because mm. it's the way in which the army was written. But there's such a big part of me that just mm. goes against the but, grain. But before we go into how to build this, I just want to make that comparison again between the different editions. Uh, third edition, I have never played it. And I've never really seen it being played, but the army list is quite different in that it is mm. very modular. You still have the same thing though, knights and peasants, but you do have the the gunpowder war machines and stuff like that. You don't have the Pegasus in there as well. And then in the fifth edition, it is very similar. The book is very similar as well. Like you, you would recognize it as Britonia compared to the, the third edition. Uh, but you don't have the Pegasus, you don't have the Trebuchet, and you do have the uh, the Squires instead that are basically the upgrade for the Bowman in sixth edition. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. I so I, the way I would describe the difference between the two in 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 simple terms is sixth edition gives you a guiding hand to say this is the theme of Britannia. So 5th edition relies on you knowing what Britannia should be like. You should know you know, about heroism, about chivalry, and so on and so forth. 6th edition just, just guides you that bit more. Just saying, just in case you've forgotten, this is Britannia. Um, but I don't think there's any any harm in that. It's 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 just different. It's a different version of the game, for different times. O tempora o mores. And uh, also, quickly mentioning that in the 2002 annual book, 
there was a Britannia list before they got their the proper 6th edition army book. Uh, which is, it is basically the 5th edition with updated points costs to mm. reflect the new yep. edition. Yep. But it it is, by by every point, it is 5th edition army list. Mm. Like all, this, the unit choices are the same, you still have the squires and stuff like that. Uh, the blessing works the same where you have to roll four plus to be able to shoot at the, mm. the unit. Yeah. Uh, but and it still uses the, the triangle transformation. There's there is for me uh, a very clear argument for using the um the annual version of the army list in, in sixth edition. If you want to keep that aesthetic of of the old Bretonian army but use it legally in the sixth edition um then yeah Bowman's use that yeah yeah definitely i would be open for for anyone using the old army list although i i really do like the sixth edition army yeah yeah i think they both have the virtues it's which version of breton you want to play yeah uh all right so on to how you would actually use this book um i i think there are three ways to use the book Either you do Peasant Heavy, or you do the the regular build, which mm-hmm. is uh, a lot of knights, or you do what is dubbed the Royal Air Force. Those are kind of the, the three yeah, main I think so, yeah. ways to build I, army. I, I think so, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, I, like you could complain that there are like three builds of the army, but they are very different. There are very different approaches to using the same army list, whereas the Empire would have slight detail changes. The same with Dwarves. Mm. You don't have that fundamental shifts in army. Well, and you, you, you could. You could, in the sense that um, you could do a, a purely, a purely um, knightly orders version of the Empire, um, which would be yeah. a bit... A bit a bit unkind because they've got better armor save. Um, and I, in fact, I I recently went to a to- well, not recently, about a year ago. Now, I went to a tournament and, and um, had my Bretonian opponent say to me, "You're trying to outbret the Brett because I just happen to have two knight units and, and a unit of pistoliers because that's all I have painted, <laughs> pretty much." Um, but no, I think there's um, yeah, there there is that yeah. As you say, there are three ways of doing Bretonia and. Um, I I think again, for me, and this is purely personal. It comes back to narrative. If you can justify it all with your narrative, that's fine. I think there are there are far more more diverse armies out there. There are more diverse ways you can build armies. Um, so no, for me it's quite legit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the like the three main branches, and then you can. Mm. You can select any units in between. Yeah. But I mean, most units have like their their kind of profile, their personality, and then you have the changes. But here you have three different ways, mm. three different paths to choose be- before you start. Oh, sorry, selecting different units. So, I just want to talk about knights. In general, so mm-hmm. it is a very nice heavy army. It is, and you yep. have the lance formation and how you could use it, the lance formation. Um, so I think there are basically two ways of using it. Either you use a small unit of six, and this is, mm-hmm. by the way, the the teachings of my partner in the tournament in Poland. He 
it's deep into Britonia. So yeah, he he favored either using uh, a unit of six. So you basically have two ranks, one rank bonus, and then you get to strike with five guys and a champion. Six attacks is great, and you don't equip them with a banner because they're far too likely to to lose a combat and lose a lot of points for what should be a budget unit. So they they're like the the budget mm. unit of knights. So they're they are great on their own. They pack a heavy punch. They're very mobile with a frontage of three. They can turn very easily and just run around the battlefield. And they're like halfway between a light cavalry unit and a heavy cavalry unit. They're very maneuverable. You don't care that much about them, but they still pack a hell of a punch. Uh, comparing that, you would need uh, just a unit of five of any other cavalry unit and they would be less maneuverable and uh, you don't get that extra rank bonus other than that you would have to run like if if you're going for combat resolution and a unit that has banners and basically this is a unit that you have to win a combat with mm. or yeah. it's all lost that's it yep then you would have to to buff it so much more than this uh, budget unit and you would have to have at least nine knights and some characters. And an approach of this is also to use the entire front rank of three with characters that are toughness four and have better armor save and maybe have magic items and stuff. So you would have maybe a paladin, maybe a lord, or just two other paladins to just create a wall of characters that the enemy can't kill so that you you get all the bonuses like they're still there and you get the rank bonus of three and you have a banner maybe you have the the army battle center there with some buffs as well and they're just like the unit to win all charges so those are my thoughts on knights in general i would use knights of the realm as the budget formation Mm -hmm. and the the big formation with heroes I think I would use questing knights as the budget formation and have as a flank unit, and the same with grey knights. Interesting. So you wouldn't go errant at all. No, I w- uh, I don't think I would ever use errants because of the weapons go three, and leadership seven, mm. and the chance that they will use runoff where you don't want them. I think paying four points more per model for nicer realm would always be better. Yeah, worth it. Yeah, well, I think that's uh, fair. I think it's absolutely fair. Yeah, the the grey lines as well could you be used in conjunction with uh, the big unit charging because uh, a frontage of three allows you to to bring two units to bear as well. Yeah, that's really true. And that's the thing with Bretonia as well compared to Kislev, say, because Kislev is lightly armored; they don't have barding. So you basically have to charge as fast as you can. You have, you have to run forward and charge when you can. But with Bretonia, with the Blessing of the Lady, you do have a lot of uh, protection against ranged firepower, and especially war machines with your 5-up ward. Uh, you, can, you do have the time to kind of put your units in position first and then charge. So you can charge in turn 3 or 4 even. And just make a decisive charge when you want it to. 
Uh, and I remember I, I did play Britannia back in 7th edition. I bought a starter box pretty much, a battalion box, and played that in some low point battles. And I remember uh, my knights being fired upon by a bolt thrower, and they killed like three ranks. And then I was like, oh wait, I have the Blessing of the Lady. And then I rolled a five ward for the first guy, which saved all three of them because the bolt is stopped because of magic. So magic. So their blessing on the lady is really good for making them uh, just durable against war machines. That, that's the thing that neither Kislev or Empire has. Like if you get shot by a bolt or a cannon, they're dead. Can't yeah. Do anything about it. So really take your time in placing your units and charge on th- turn three or four. Mm. That's the main advantage of Britonia, I'd say. Yep, absolutely. Um, saying again though, if I would make a Bretonian army, I think I would make a a Royal Air Force, just because I I have a cavalry army already, and uh, I have an infantry army with my dwarves, but a flying cavalry army would be super cool. So I would basically have three units of knights in the budget formation, knights of the realm, just as a supporting role, and then three units of Pegasus knights with three characters on Pegasus, just to max out on flying cavalry, just to, yeah, a heavenly charge, that would be cool. Sounds, uh, sounds amazing. So, so you, you well, are planning, or you've already started on your return army. I, I, I have indeed, um, I, I should give a small hiatus because the Black Terror has re-emerged and said it is time to feed the cats, so we'll, we'll rejoin you in just a moment. And we're back. So you're telling about us about your latest project, with which relates to the the third way, yep. in my opinion, of building the Britannian army. It, it does indeed. So I'm very much building on the narrative sense. So um, I um, I grew up in um, in France in in Nantes, so like the, the former capital of Brittany, which is a, a one of the numerous wine regions of France, and. Um, and the wine harvest is, was a very big part of things. And in in the Middle Ages, changing seasons and, and feasts were, were so, so, so important. I mean, if you think of feasts, there's like two senses of it. There's the, the like Christian ceremony sense and there's the the feasting, the eating, the drinking sense. And, and both were so important. So if you look at the Christian feasts, Easter and Christmas were big, big moments. They were crown-wearing moments. So Charlemagne and William the Conqueror were both crowned on, on Christmas Day. Matilda, William's wife, was crowned during Pentecost. Um, they're so important. And coming back to the Green Knights, in Gawain and the Green Knights, the way the story starts is, and I'll be brief, <laughs> Arthur is sat there at his court, it's the feast, so they've they've been feasting for days and days, they've had Christmas, it's New Year's Day, it's the feast. Everyone's served, but he won't let anyone eat, and he won't eat himself, until either he's heard a great story of knightly deeds, or he has seen knightly deeds. At this moment, the Green Knight appears, who's completely green. But there's this, this little passage in the Simon Armitage translation which i just want to read it's very brief and it gives you an idea of how important wine and food were at the time 
For the feasting lasted for a full fortnight and one day, with more food and drink than a fellow could dream of. His pledge to take no portion from his plates on such a special day until a story was told, some far-fetched fable, yarn, or fabulous tale, the tallest of tales, yet one ringing of truth like the action-packed epics of Men at Arms. And that's, that's very clear. It's like, we want knights and we want food and drink. And I just thought, Britannia, let's just shove the two together. So I'm building a Britannian army, which is based around the wine harvest. And I'm really looking forward to it because wine harvest, I'm who drinks the wine? The knights. And who does the harvest? The peasants. So I very much want it to be a a peasant-heavy army, a bit like the army of um, of Henry V at Agincourt, very peasant-heavy. And it might not be tactically very um, very easy to do, but um, you know, I think it will be fun. And at the moment, some of you may have seen on on uh, on Instagram or Facebook, I'm I've I'm halfway through converting a wine pressed wine press. So I've got um I've got uh Jules Le Jongleur who was um so you've got Tristan the Troubadour and Jules Le Jongleur from like I think God five fourth edition something like that. That's fifth edition. Fifth yeah. edition is it? Yeah that's another thing touching on fifth edition. They had so many special characters. Like mm. ten or something. It's crazy. Yeah. I brought so much in. Um and like Tristan clearly like Tristan is all um and he's got a troubadour, like a jester, who is... How can I describe this character? Picture your, your typical medieval fool, like, as you would imagine him, with the bells on the hat and everything, and the bright colours, and he's pretending to, to ride a, uh, a wooden horse, like a, a child's toy wooden horse, and, like, waving a stick with, a, like, a sort of fabric balloon at the top about. He's going to be leading the army, like like the head of the Grail Reliquay, basically. I'm substituting a wine press for a Grail Reliquay. With Jules Le Jongleur leading in front, um, two monks pulling the Reliquay. So I said, like, men aren't very present in, in Britannian religion, which is really interesting if you think of re- you know, real-world religion. Um, they're not present at all, but they're just pulling the wine press. And then you've got a chap at the back who's beating the drum... While um, while there's a, um, a a chap actually pressing the wine, like proper old school, that's going to be for me the basis of it. Um, and I'm just building it all out from there. And basically, the 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 noble knights will be drinking wine, and the peasants will be um, will be drinking beer. Um, so that's the narrative of it, and and. I can't build an army without going a bit over the top. So, the army is called the Festival de Follenval. Follenval is an old French way of saying the fool or the jester or the madman in the valley. Follenval. And I've written a little, a little ditty to go with it. So you, what you can hear in the background is the the bells of a fool's hat. Yeah, and I'm currently donning the fool's hat. So I've uh, I've employed the services of my uh, my trusted brother, uh, both in blood and in arms, um, Dominic, to uh, to accompany me on the guitar for this little rendition of uh, a song I call 
le festival de Follonval. When autumn once more draws in there, a lady's blessing doth appear in dewdrops like bells on fine lace and the ripened fruit among the trees. The trees. So Follonval becomes its best with merry months and feasts and jests for harvest. When wine is prized greater than juice, than juice. Come one, come all, and join the dance. One will reward those gather lost. The plowman will be gifted there, and one and all will know Gretchen, for all uh, all festivals uh, particularly harvest festivals um, and, and we'll take our payment in wine and uh, gold so that is the that's the gist of it so that is full on val full on val is the is the feast of fools it's harvest it's it's wine um and uh, and yeah the army is going to be built around um Mainly, mainly peasants. Some, some knights. Uh, you know, obviously the knights of the realm that you have to have. Um, but I'm very tempted with a with a um, <laughs> with a with, with a standard knight on on standard bearer knight on foot. And um, yeah, it's mainly the, the opportunity for conversions that interests me in this army. Um, yeah. So yeah, the conversion you've done so far, as you said on your your Instagram, Fourth Lord Paints, is very cool. The the wine press. I love it. And I've also seen your your questing knights as well. Yeah, so the questing knights are basically um, chaps with with big swords and a lot of alcohol on their backs. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the gist of it. So, I think it's one of these armies which is perhaps not going to be um, necessarily uber competitive, but uh, hopefully has the element of surprise because no one expects it, and also it just has this 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 narrative value, and there's something about 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 futility about lost hope about fighting against the odds which really appeals to me with a Bretonian force it's just you know it's so different it's really different I suppose the the only other army that could compare would perhaps be um, to a certain extent the dwarves who are like they're a declining culture um, they're a declining culture, and, and so there's that, that that sadness that goes with that. Maybe to a certain extent, high elves, but even the high elves, you still get the sense that they're they're in control. Britannia, they're just they're just out there, man, to, to you know just 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 do what's right, even yeah. if it's uh, even if they don't win. So I mentioned that I I did play Britannia in seventh edition briefly, and that was actually because I was playing dwarves. My entire Warmaker, and I actually just got like some so bummed out. And not having cavalry. No, that like about the the lore that they're just like in the mm. declines. You said that yep. they're just losing ground all the time. And then I thought like, man, I really want to play an army that's like 
up and coming that like yeah. has potential to do stuff in the lore. So yeah, I'm absolutely. Just... I, yeah, and I, again to get, to go back to to a previous moment, I think that that's something that people forget. They we tend to get so caught up in the analogy with real world that we forget that Britannia is actually a younger nation than the Empire. Yeah, they are on their way up. Yeah. They're just beginning. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I also like um, the the difference between Empire and Britannia. You can really see that, like the the Empire or the the dwarf influenced human race, and yeah. Britannia is the elf influenced human race. Yep. Yeah. No. A- a- absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's um, that, that's that's paramount. But there's there's a lot to explore with Britannia. So basically. My my parting words for this episode would be if you if you haven't tried Britannia, give it a try, um, and just just remember when you were when you were a child. You may still be a child, but if if you're not a child anymore, remember when you were a child. That time, that you know, we've all got like a TV series or a book or something where it's like it was maybe it was Robin Hood, who, who's also in in, in Britannia. Maybe it's it's you know Ivanhoe. 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 Yep. Which uh, you know, again, Ivanhoe is is maybe a bit a bit difficult for some of its some of its uh, ideas today. But but it, I would say use Warhammer. Forget forget the difficulties that we all have around some periods in history because Warhammer is fantasy. Warhammer. Is dreams. Warhammer is striving for that purest knightly ideal, which perhaps in the real world never really existed. But Warhammer is the place of dreams and aspiration. It's the place where you can live freely, where you can imagine, where you can build, where you can have an army that represents what you want. And for me, that's Britannia. Britannia is dreams, it's chivalry, it's imagination. And why wouldn't you? Yeah. Th- those are excellent uh, finishing words. Uh, I, I can't talk them in any way. I just want to say that uh, Instagram is also filled with wonderful Britannia profiles. It really is. Yeah, there, there's, some, there's some really great Britannia profiles. I'm... Far too, far too major list. Um, yeah, but of the ones that that I follow, the the Britannia ones really light up my day when they they post an update because uh, it is really the the perfectionist hobbyist dream to build a Britannia army because they all have different heraldry and you can just each night is like a new project kind of. Yeah, it it really is. That's the. That's the beauty of it. It's, um, I think, Britannia of all the factions is the one which which reflects the, the individual and gives its give the, gives the individual's aspirations wings. It it really is. Yeah. Okay, I think uh, I think we covered all the bases. I think we're done here. Uh, if you've listened this far, thank you very much, and it was a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you very much, Joseph. And uh, we'll see you in the next one.